I could not be more excited to announce the newest ad campaign for Miller Lite. The beer industry has objectified the fair sex for far too long, and we wish to rectify these past transgressions, with an homage to the women who have been the trailblazers of the beer industry throughout history. And pairing with us on this campaign... Uh, guys, it uh, says here we hired Alana Glazer, the pretentious New York lady from Broad City. Okay. Uh, look, I, you know we sell beer to, like, construction workers, right? Blue-collar guys? I, I get it. I, I'm here to read the ad. All I'm saying is that Anheuser-Busch lost, like, $5 billion over the Mulvaney incident. I mean, guys, all I'm saying is it's a, it's a lot of money. And it, Sorry? Target selling tuck-friendly swimwear for kids. Oh, God. Oh, no, no, we're, we'll be fine. Uh, see if Glazer will throw a bikini on or something. I'm pretty sure Target's going to make their heads explode. We should fly under the radar on this one. Uh, so, Miller Lite. At least you can't say we're coming for your kids. the mob podcast where me and my good friend matthew billingsley spend our time doing a little bit of research so that we can find ways outside of the state to solve the answers that the world has the problems that we all face as a society uh today we wanted in the interest of uh tackling a kind of a particularly tough subject uh and we've been thinking about that more and more lately of like what are the things that are interesting to talk about in this uh libertarian and cap headspace that we seem to like to push towards uh, and one of those questions that we think are particularly hard to answer and particularly hard for the uh, free market to find a solution for, and therefore when we wanted to tackle today, is the issue of mental illness, uh, and specifically the way it correlates into our homeless population here in this nation. So we'll do a short little history about mental health care uh, and some of the cobbled stats that we put together just to kind of help us all frame this conversation a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about the institutionalization and then thereafter deinstitutionalization of the mental health care system within this nation. Uh, and then we'll reflect on kind of what we learned as a as individuals researching this, as well as the solutions we've kind of discussed as a, a collective, Matthew and I, and where we think that the uh, correct solutions may lie when it comes to tackling this gigantic problem we have in mental illness and the homeless epidemic in this country. This could be, I don't know, probably three or four or five different episodes. So I think we're, we're really ambitious to try to cram this into one, but I think it's a good starting point um, at least to try to get a framework of, you know, maybe like a, a quick rundown of what's happened and yeah, just a, a look at potential ways um, how the, how the free market could solve it. But I also think that it's a really good example of how sometimes because of market incentives, like we talked about in our last episode, you were, 
push towards a less desirable solution because of the free market, right? I think that that's right. That's that's one thing that as I've grown in this space, starting to realize, like, yes, Ancapistan is a is a lovely theoretical utopia, and that's all it really is is a utopia because there are ways that um, the free market won't solve, right? There's certain issues. And I'm not saying that, and that's one of the interesting things to look at. And I think this is a good microcosm of this um, as a whole is that there's some, t- like maybe if the free market won't solve it by itself, well, and you don't want government to step in and solve it, then how do we actually go about curtailing the, um, I don't know, the forces of institution and capital to try to come to a place that it's actually beneficial and helpful for society that's not just like self-serving to one or the other. And I do think part of it, uh, I mean, I, I'm cringe a little bit when you say that the free market can't solve a solution as a, a free market anarchist myself. It makes me <laughs> makes me feel sad inside when you say that. Uh, and I, I think that it's at least uh, reasonable to say that it's a more complex issue than simply being able to boil it down to is the free market better or is the state sanctioned system better? Uh, there's also conversations within both of those of like, how do you approach, especially the, the state system, because you're talking about a bottom down approach to this problem. Uh, there's a lot of different ways. And we'll discuss a little bit of kind of the different camps of thought within that uh, as we go along through this podcast as well. Um, but it's a lot more complex than simply the free market won't uh, be able to solve it. I don't even think that we necessarily got a perfect litany test for the free market attempting to solve it because we'll we saw the free market attempt to address it and then the government come in the government influencing the free market uh and sure. discouraging it from you know and, and monetary problems um it's a big complex system uh big complex problem i think the free market often is one that we lean towards because there are so many different avenues when you have a free market there are so many different amalgamations and simultaneous experiments you can run that allow people to see what has the best result. Unfortunately, right. we also, as we always talk about in this in podcast, incentives matter. It's really hard to get rich rehabilitating people with schizophrenia. There's <laughs> not a lot of money to be made in that. So there has to be an entirely new incentive base that has to come from our desire as a society, our deep-rooted need to take care of our fellow man, or maybe government mandates that require us to take these people who are destitute and put them in facilities. Uh, but that's kind of the discussion we want to have today. We want to just kind of be around the bush, see what we think about that, and see what the uh, the possible solutions Matthew and I can stir up might be for this yeah. gigantic problem. No, no, you're totally right because it is one of those things. Like I'm not here to. Right. I didn't I didn't become a status cuck in my transformation by any means um, <laughs> as, as I've like grown in this space. Uh, it is just interesting as we've gotten deeper into this podcast and we're starting to get into a little bit more complex issues and starting to re- research. It's it's a problem that I that I think and you can correct me if you see this uh, differently, but I'm starting to find these topics where we're running up where um where the free market, like the incentives that are being established by the market aren't serving the people at the end of the day. And I'm not here to say like poo-poo on the free market. I I am a raging capitalist, right? I, I, I love running a business. I'm in the process of creating another business and I'm all about it, right? I am somebody that is a firm believer in you go out there and compete. And if you have a good product and a good service, then you can make money and you should figure out and you should hire a good accountant to figure out how to keep as much of that money as you can. So you don't have to pay taxes on all of it. Right. I'm 
all about that. So don't don't get me don't get me wrong or like don't let this like get misconstrued. It is just That's a whole heel flip. And I think it's also healthy too, and and something that I uh, myself have done some personal checking in the last couple months of like trying to decide what my you know it's part of a an ongoing process I think for anybody who has a healthy uh, political view or just outlook on life in general I think you kind of constantly have to be checking yourself uh, and and going through these litmus tests of like am I drinking the Kool-Aid here? Did I decide that I liked what Dave Smith told me and I bought hundred percent into this ANCAP thing and I haven't done. So I, I think it's a de- definitely a healthy inclination to be able to admit uh, that, Hey, there are problems that I'm not hundred percent sure that can be solved by the free market economy and taking government out of it because there are problems like the homeless problem where there isn't a financial incentive for us to fix it. So now your incentive base becomes moral essentially. Um, and there's some arguments there that like, especially as we become a more secular society, most of the charity used to come through these religious entities uh, for the poor, for the homeless, for the mentally ill. So that's something that we've continued to erode and subvert within our society as we become more secular. But then we're rubbing up against this problem now of like, well, does it fall on us as just who wants to take up the mantle in the private sector to solve this problem? Or does it behoove us as a society to come together and say, we are going to allocate some of our funds in the form of the tax money to actually solving this issue. Uh, And, you know, the problem with that always being that the same problem we always run into when you monopolize a market in the form of government control, there's no incentive to actually improve upon yourself. So, and that's part of the uh, story of the atrocious mental health care within our nation so far uh, to date. Yeah. And and what's really interesting about that too, is um, in a perfect world, you would see people, just doing it because it's the right thing, right? Um, that you would see people open up their wallet books and voluntarily fund stuff like a state-run mental hospital um, because it actually does serve our, our fellow man. Um, because I saw this really interesting statistic and it was broken down by county across the United States and it was this map and it, and it showed um, percentage of people that give to charities, and what was really interesting, and this isn't surprising to me, is that the South was a, was the most charitable place in the country, right? And I don't know where, because like we have listeners all over the country and some out of the country. And so as somebody that grew up in the South, absolutely, I see that because the South is a very charitable place, right? Yes, they will badmouth you as soon as you leave I mean, it's also church, you know, and into it's- their, their religious beliefs. I mean, that was something I was a, a strong Christian growing up and 10% of every check I made until I was probably 20 years old went either directly to tithing in church or to donations uh, right. to charities, like you said, because that's that's the religion there. You're supposed to give it at minimum 10%. And I'm and I'm a firm believer that in my personal life, right? I'm a big believer in, you know, um, tithing in whatever form that actually comes in, just because I think that it is the right thing to do at the end of the day, right? Like I've been blessed with... Um, you know, by no means, like I don't get to retire tomorrow. Um, but you know what? I, I've been blessed in the sense, like I don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I have, I've been given quite a bit and in quite a bit, right? It's not like, like, don't get me, I'm not trying to like paint a picture that I'm a fucking mogul by <laughs> any means, right? I'm still very poor in very real ways. <laughs> but at the same time, like relatively speaking, I've been given a lot and I think that it is important to give back. And what, uh, what's interesting in that chart is like the most charitable is 
the South and the least charitable is the Northeast. And having like met people from like New York City, I buy it 100%. Like I know people from New York City, New Jersey, and it's like, yeah, of course you guys don't give. You guys are fucking assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to bring up the old uh, uh, me kind but not nice thing. Uh, but that, I guess that doesn't really match that. The old paradigm is that the uh, the West Coast is nice but not kind, and the East Coast is kind but not nice. Yeah, and, and you of would course, have somebody from Boston pop you in the mouth but help you up afterwards, kind of thing. Yeah, and of uh, course, like we're speaking in generalizations, right? Because of course, of course. that doesn't that doesn't correlate to like charitable giving, right? I think that those are two actually separate. Um, um, I don't know metrics that you could measure. But no, I think that it is interesting. And I think that's a good way to kind of hop into what we did want to talk about today is, is like framing this conversation. And I, I think what's been fun is to always try to find a, a relatively like recent event that's in the news that's front and center for everybody's mind so that then we can hop into these like deeper dives into a subject. Have we, have, can, I, can you think of any like recent mental illness stories that we've had going on in this country? Well, there's a God. There's, there's <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, where do we like, start? Like, there's not one every fucking week. Yeah, right. Where do we start? Um, and I think that what what kind of spurred this one, at least in my mind, was um, the incident that occurred in New York City a few weeks ago, right? And so we're um, maybe we'll do an episode on it once the trial starts. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But here's like the quick rundown of it. So there's an agitated homeless man who is allegedly being aggressive and threatening passengers on a subway. And like I said, like, I'm really curious to see the discovery process of this trial because I'd like to know, like, do we have video before? Like what leads up to homeboy putting him in chokehold? Um, and so a former Marine subdues the man and he puts him in a chokehold for reportedly anywhere from like 14 to 17 minutes. Um, they get to the next uh, platform. The man's pronounced dead uh, by police and EMS on the scene. The man's initially released, but then he's later charged with manslaughter. Um, and I, I want to then go into something that flirt cheap said in one of his posts a few weeks ago. And I think we can use that as like a springboard into the formal conversation. And I'm like clipping this. So, you know, um, go read the whole post if you really want to. Um, and it says, quote, so who's at fault? We are. This is a massive societal failure. We are so afraid of asylums due to a few movies and the horrors of mental health in the 40s that we let Reagan shut down the majority of the public asylums. How do you rehabilitate untreated schizophrenia? You don't. No matter what Glaxo, Smith Klein says about their pills can do. So now that these people walk, in, in the streets and share public spaces while we do our best to pretend that they're invisible. Our public spaces are the way they are because we've abdicated our responsibility to our fellow man. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No matter which side of this argument you fall upon, whether you think that it should be a public or a private sector thing that, that solves this uh, a free market or a governmental answer. Uh, I think it still stares us right in the face that flirt nails it right on the head with that of, of uh, this is absolutely a societal failure. Either way, you chop it up. There, this is is a disgusting measure of our society, and one that's only increasing and and kind of increasing over the entire civilized world. It seems like, other than there's a couple places like Finland that have had some recent results that seem to uh, to have hope for it. But but you know, let's see a generation go by and see how it goes. Yeah, and there's and I think that's that's always an interesting thing too when you step back and try to think about like. What is our responsibility to our fellow man in the grand scheme of things at a societal level? So I've been, I, I found this podcast that I've really been enjoying, and it's just called The Cold War. And in in the very first episode, the guy talks about how 
like the Cold War is essentially a battle of ideologies versus collectivism, which has been the norm of all of human history until this weird little offshoot fights the British empire and decides that they're going to focus on individual rights you know and for and and i thought that was really interesting framing of it because of course we look at collectivism especially in the form of the 20th century and the horrors that it gave us but it is not to say that yeah of course like we are collective creatures because even in a, in kapistan we were talking about voluntarily organizing a collective and in this collective, we're all helping each other serve, right? And of course, it's, it's the, the voluntary association, which is the important thing of that. But even at the end of the day, that's what we're striving to do is create a collective of voluntarily associating people and voluntary transactions that all serve one another. But the end goal, though, is to have a well-formed and well-functioning like collective unit. Because um, that's what cities are. That's what communities are. That's what a family is, right? And I think it was a really interesting framing for me to step back and be like, oh, like maybe this, like, have we swung so far? Like, has the pendulum swung where now, because of the horrors of communism and fascism, that uh, that I will never try to mimic, I will never carry water for them whatsoever i'll be the first to say that stalin deserved the terrible death that he suffered you know because of the terrible life that he lived um it is interesting though to like step back and say like okay even as individuals we do strive for a harmonious collective at least in our camp we want that collective to be voluntary and that is an interesting way to frame that i mean and, and we say that a lot of like oh it's not not without uh rules it's without government not without laws it's without government that's what anarchy means but that may even be a more succinct way to put it is that it is it is not without organization in society where a lot of people picture anarchy they picture chaos they picture mad max and running through the streets and plundering every all your neighbors it, it doesn't mean that there is no formal uh organization of people it's just saying that we don't think the most optimal way to do that is to put one or a small select group of humans in charge who get to decide from the top down exactly how every aspect of society should be run that rather taking a natural approach and allowing uh, hierarchies to form in a more natural way as uh, you know, most of the greatest, most complex systems we see are designed by nature and not by man, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that that, that is a more apt way in my opinion, for us to find a hierarchical system that, that uh, takes care of everybody within it. Um, but again, hey, that's what we're here for today is to discuss whether we believe that's correct in every aspect and if this is a problem too big for free markets. Yeah. And it's one I think that it is interesting to to say that it's like, is it too big for free markets? Because my inclination, like, no, it's not. Um, like a true right, it's not too big. What I, I don't question the free market as as a whole, right? Like maybe as the idea, the abstract idea and the complex manifestation that is the free market. It's not that I, it's not that, that I question. I, what I question is the incentive base and, and the honeypots that are stuck out along the way to skew what should be like <laughs> something like this, right? Because this is, I think this is a really good topic about it is because this is not a, this should not be like a lucrative 
massive profit making endeavor, right? Like treating mental illness and, and making sure like homeless people get the mental health services they, that they need. Like, like, yes, you can make money on it because of course, like even like, yeah, nonprofits can still make money. They just have to like at the end of every year, they got to make sure that they spend that money back into something so that they didn't profit, but they can still make money. Right. I know people on nonprofit boards that make massive amounts of money and these nonprofits have huge operating budgets. It's not that they don't aren't allowed to make money, but it's that you don't like when you incentivize when you create the incentive to maximize profit in something like this, like treating severe mental illness, I think that that probably needs to be a distinction. Like I'm not talking about like the general run of the mill existential dread and anxiety that we all face because we have thumbs in a frontal lobe, right? Like you're not unique in the sense that you have anxiety. We all do. Right. But some of us have like crippling anxiety and some of us have like severe mental illness, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or like severe depression. Right. And so I think it's important that we differentiate, like not trying to milk um, every person's natural fears and existential dread that it comes from the industrial revolution and its consequences for just existing in 2023, but actually trying to treat and house and facilitate a long-term positive prognosis for people with severe mental illness. That endeavor probably shouldn't make you fortunes. And so then how do you incentivize and how do you create the right um, the right steps and safeguards in a free market to make sure that people aren't overpopulating a room instead of instead of like having two beds in a room, cramming six in bunk beds because I can make more money, right? Those are the type of safeguards that or I think that are important to point lobotomizing out. Lobotomizing all the patients so they're nice and docile and they sit next to each other quietly in their chairs. Exactly, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is kind of one of those questions. Maybe this is just one of the challenges of kind of being in a capitalist country that in a country that incentivizes only the capital and and, and producing and, and making that money, that almighty dollar, what do you get? How do we treat mental illness these days? It's one of those 75 pharmaceutical commercials I had to watch between the commercials of the Nuggets uh, Lakers game. Uh, they had, they just pound you over the head with all these psychological medications uh, that that's become the number one, like driving motive for our treatment of it is big pharma. And I wonder how much of that, and we'll discuss a little bit of that uh, as we go through this as well. Of, um, how much has that influenced it? You know, how much has big pharma gotten its fingers in it and become trying to position itself as the actual market cure, the correct way to, to deal with mental illness, uh, resulting in the shutdown of a lot of these mental health institutions along the way. Um, now, I believe Reagan, when he did so, it was a little bit more, at least from what I was able to to read on it, seems like it was more about the war effort and the Cold War and, and trying to pump up more defense uh, spending, which is you know what it's always about when they're cutting uh, domestic spending here. Uh, but I don't think it's crazy to say that this is uh, one of the largest lobbying systems in big pharma in this country might have had a little bit of influence in making sure that we whittled down over time the uh, organization of institutionalized treatment of mental health in this country. Yeah. And there's something like there's so much to unpack right there. Um, one, I, I think I maybe I'd like to start with like the uh, the idea between guns and butter. Right. And this is this is a um, economic theory that's often lost just because we don't teach civics um, and basic economics in in our schools anymore. But that is the that is a problem that is faced every government from 
old school kingdoms to modern 2023 America and every other country on this planet right now, right? Like, how do you prioritize your budget? And they and they always categorize it guns and butter because it's defense spending or domestic goods. And what's always interesting is that America, at one point, we shifted, and this is like a whole episode in itself, and I promise not to get too deep in the weeds, is that once upon a time, like, after World War II, we were all guns, no butter. And then we looked at it and said, well, this is completely unfeasible. We cannot continue funding guns at this rate. So we're going to go, we're going to cut back on guns, and we're going to focus more on butter. And then as the Cold War heats up and thermonuclear weapons get into the yada yada, the geopolitical chessboard gets all wonky, America goes, we're going to do guns and butter, right? And that's a very unique... Yeah, we finally figured out that you you stop fighting these large conglomerate of developed countries that have actual war machines you start proxy wars all over the world where you're not really worried about losing the war and that way you can continue to produce both absolutely and that's a and that's a budgetary choice that is feasible for you know um it's feasible for eisenhower and it runs out by kennedy right you can do guns and butter yeah for like six years of spending, but then you start to really come to a point where it's like, okay, well, we literally cannot do both. Um, and even, even with the money printer, right. <laughs> you can, you cannot do both. You actually have to prioritize your spending. And so it, this is a very interesting aspect to see that's like for every bomb that we choose to send to Ukraine, what does that mean in terms of like mental health services that we don't get to provide in this country. What does that mean in terms of like when you send $130 billion of total aid to Ukraine, what does that mean domestically, right? Um, What does that mean when you approve in fiscal year 2024, a defense budget that is roughly $800 billion, right? How many domestic programs start to suffer um, because of that, or not even start to suffer, continue to suffer and and are exacerbated, right? Because you're talking about like the Congress and the debt ceiling. Right. One of the things they want to do is they want to cut VA by 25%. I mean, this is a, I, I have friends in the VA and some of them have it better than others, but it's not a system that can really take absorb a 25% cut. And so yeah, I was every- just showing Matt a, a video yesterday of that where they they had the the tracker, it was just a, a line chart, and they had deaths in Iraq, deaths in Afghanistan, and deaths by suicide since 2002, I think, is when this started. And I mean, the deaths by suicide are tenfold at the beginning of the video and outpace it continuously throughout. The last that I saw was like 37 um, veterans a day commit suicide. Mm. And that's the, and, the, and that's the thing, right? And this is why we have to start talking about some of these things. It's guns or butter. And for every, and Eisenhower, and I'm, of course, like, I want to botch this entire thing, but he, he, in one of his speeches, he actually talks about this. He's, he's laying out for the American people, just what the actual cost of, of war is. And he talks about for every like bomber that we make, we could have built 200 brick schoolhouses. And he, and he just goes down the line of like, for every one nuclear submarine that we make, we could have built X amount of highways and all of the, right. And so now all of a sudden, like it starts to put it into a very real perspective, just how much this stuff actually costs. When you talk about from the periphery, when you talk about a million dollar 
per Tomahawk missile launch. And we launched 12 of them on C- targets in Syria. Of course, like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin go cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. But now, like when you get to the domestic level and you start talking about at your state level or your county level about um, what $12 million may actually be able to do for whatever service, whether you agree with it, that it should exist or not, what it could actually fund. I mean, I personally don't think there is a price that could be put on Syria's uh, one shining shot at true democracy. I know they fell a little bit short after we left. They didn't quite get it together. Uh, but I think the the opportunity for freedom is worth having shit on the streets in Philadelphia and San Francisco and New York at all times, Matthew, personally. Yeah, dude, those pictures were disgusting. And Philadelphia is the city that I've always wanted to visit because I love the history of that city but i've also heard from so many people they're like don't go like it's like one it's just it's absolutely not safe and two it's just it's everything that's cool has been vandalized or you know or it's just like in a not safe part of town which the founders like shame on us the founders are rolling in their grave it's like we signed the fucking declaration of independence to let you guys on conversation to let it like to let this like homeless problem get out of control so now there's there's drug addicts and people that actually need help that are just like vandalizing the streets. And it's not to like, cause this is the thing, right? It's now all of a sudden it's like, I'm not saying that all homeless people are violent. I'm not saying that at all. Right. It's that it's the situation as a whole that we have created. We as society have created is not good. And that's one of those things where we look at good, better, best scenarios. And I, and maybe we can get in this later, but I'm not convinced that like defunding state hospitals, like state mental hospitals, was a good decision. Like I'm not definitely in the the, the chronological order of which we carried it out. I mean, it, it uh, and that was kind of I've had a couple like stats I wanted to throw out just to kind of help frame it up. Um, and the first thing that kind of jumped out to me when I was researching this, that I never realized is that the the first wave of mental health institutions in this country were private mental health institutions. Um, I just always assumed it was this big government thing because I had always heard the same story of like, oh, Reagan signed it away and let all the fucking homeless people out on the streets in 1986. Or whatever all the crazies crazy crazy got out of there. Um, but it, it was interesting to see that it that was not the fact that, that in fact, we did have a at the very beginning of this trying to address this problem. It did come from a free market standpoint that that enough people kind of at least saw this issue, came together and decided, hey, we need to actually uh, establish something going on. Here's something that can can at least begin to address this problem. Yeah. Uh, now, which is well, I was going to say, which is really interesting, um, because there that is one of the uh, that is one of the foundations of the separation of church and state, and why churches were tax exempt and are still tax exempt is because the founders really looked at at a ch- as churches as the charity that they provided to their actual community and they were afraid that it one if you taxed it you would disincentivize them to actually perform those charities and then also too it gets into like some really like interesting legal framework of now all of a sudden like state sponsored um you know religions and whatnot there's and because logan and i started prepping an episode on this and it kind of got pushed by the wayside but that's but that's that's exactly probably why I can't say exactly. Probably that's that's terrible use of English. <laughs> um, that is that is probably why you have these private institutions and private enterprises actually picking up this mantle is because before 
you actually have a federal government that is so powerful that it can legislate these type of things into existence. You relied on the charity of the church in that area. You relied on the goodness of the community in that area to fund these type of things. And to me, that's still kind of the the free market thought of of how we could solve this is we're and it comes with a lot of work and probably more than a generation or at least a generation of revamping this. But in order for the free market to take care of a problem like homelessness, I think it has to come down to your community, your culture, where that person comes from that, hey, here's Tommy down the street who suffers from schizophrenia. We as a community have to set up a situation where he can be rehabilitated or at least be be a reasonable uh, additive member to society or at the, you know, at the very least not be a detriment to society and, and be out on the streets uh, causing problems, committing crimes and, and terrorizing the neighborhood. Um, I think that's also why you do see a lot more of a homeless issue inside of large cities. I think it takes uh, these disjointed communities. In a large city, it's almost like everybody becomes just an NPC. There's not as strong of a, a connection. Whereas um, like I live out here in the boonies, we just moved into a new place. Uh, I know half my neighbor's names. I've waved and made eye contact with every one of them, whether I've met them yet or not. It's There's already like a, Hey, there's this new guy in the community. We're looking out for each other, little things like picking up each other's trash cans. And it's something like when you see somebody every day, it's harder to ignore the mental health they're struggling with. When right. you're getting on the bus subway in New York, and some dude's losing his mind. You're like, I'm not dealing with that today. I'm, I've got a, a macchiato in my left hand. I'm not putting down for anybody else's fucking morning. I'm trying to save this. So my morning can be okay personally. Right. No, it's it's true. And I think that's one of those trade-offs of cities versus, I don't know, rural areas. Because, I mean, I live in one of those places. I have a few neighbors. None of them live here full time. But I know them. Right. I know all of them. And it's always nice that I like living in a place that uh, people are always kind of like looking out for you. Oh, hey, I noticed that your front door was open or like I even had my neighbor the other day. Um, I like got out. I was on the phone when I pulled up to my house and I just got in my truck and I walked inside and my neighbor texted me like two hours later and was like, hey, your uh, truck door's been open ever since you pulled in. Is everything OK? Right. Not. Uh, it's just like. Like, yes, th thank you for checking on me, right? Like, I appreciate you, you noticing that, yeah, I've just like, my door has been open. Um, At first, for a I minute. thought you were going to say, immediately called Shelby and said, there's a large black man walking into the front of your house right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but there, there's definitely something to that. Like, uh, we, and and as a, in general, as a society, we've become so transient and so, uh, I don't know what the word is, but we're we're working remotely a lot more now. Uh, we're we're disjointed. We're not. We don't have communities within our physical communities anymore. We have a lot of online communities. We have a lot of right. groups that we interact with in the the virtual space uh, more and more so. But we're having less and less of that human to human contact. And I think that's uh, part of what you you probably are counting on uh, if you're making the case for a free market to solve this problem. Um, I do think it was in, just an interesting thought, and I wanted to bring that up to uh, just to show. I, and I don't know. I haven't wasn't able to do in the amount of research I would need to know uh, to do to know exactly when we ultimately went from a less privatized and a more public uh, funded uh, centralized federal kind of system of institutionalized medicine for the mentally ill. Uh, and when that ultimately kind of became a monopolized market because the government was running it. Um, and then 
essentially, as we all have already alluded to, Reagan pulls the plug on, uh, causing all of it just to now there's a, a case study. And I and we bring that up a lot, too. I think a lot of times we get caught in this trap of uh, the framework of people going like, well, how's anarchy going to solve homelessness? And it's like, well, look what the, the government did, though, to homelessness. They monopolized the space that the free market had addressed, at least. And it was attempting they, to address. Attempting to address. And they they monopolized it. Uh, created a system where it was discouraging the private ones from staying open. So they all end up closing and diverting to the public ones. And then the public ones just pull the plug. So now there's absolutely no safety net for all of these people. And it just got yanked out of a government program because we needed to make more bombs to kill more brown people around the country, around the, the world, as we always seem to have to do when something like this happens. Uh, you, you cry and cry for the government to take care of something. And then they end up pulling the plug at some point to pay for the war machine every single freaking time. Uh, so it doesn't even matter that they did take over it. In fact, it might be worse in some regards because they took over it, discouraging a private privatized answer to the problem, uh, leaving us with absolutely no social safety net uh, in the, the aftermath, which is, is always unfortunate. Yeah. And what's also interesting, too, about that is it almost seems like there's this big overcorrection always right where it would be nice to just like can we just like dip our toes into something see how it plays out right instead of like cutting funding to all of it right? like or instead of like having these like these wide sweeping if you want to start at the start um of this like instead of having these wide sweeping regulations that the state's now getting involved that disincentivizes private companies or charities from actually trying to operate these mental hospitals or asylums because they are different but close enough right at the end of the day it's a, it's a place for people with severe mental illness to go be safe and try to figure out how to make them okay um instead of yeah and so instead of just like overcorrecting with massive amounts of uh regulations like I don't know why don't I just like try to say, like, hey, I noticed you guys have been chaining them up and beating them. Uh, could you guys <laughs> stop that? Like, let's just start there, right? Like, I'm not gonna like put, put too much regulation on you, but it's like you guys hey, can't. Buddy, we're, we're casting a wide net out here. You solve it your way, we'll solve it our way. We'll all do in our part. Just let us beat them into submission, <laughs> right? It's like, and so instead of like you know, you guys doing that and like, ah, you know, like try to treat them like people. And start there, right? Instead of like creating all of these market, um, all of these regulations into the market, which ultimately does create monopolies. And and I, I don't want to get too much into it right now, but um, but I like I'm getting into a heavily regulated business, and the amount of like hoops that you have to jump through is astronomical. And one of these days, I'll do a full deep dive on all of my the the adventures of the last. 10 months because that's how long it's fucking taken to actually get into this um it it doesn't mean it shows just like there's you guys really uh overcorrected on this and you guys made this a lot harder than it needs to be people think it's just as easy as turn on the camera and recording your sex acts but pornography is actually a very nuanced industry it absolutely is and i'll be damned if i'm like i'm gonna be shamed for many of you I mean, who are you to judge me? Yeah. I'd be damned, be damned <laughs> if any of you were going to tell me I shouldn't. No, Matt, I, I'm being facetious. That's not the uh, particular industry Matt's referring to. But um, <laughs> I did want to also mention, uh, just kind of in the the studies and th in the common themes that we've noticed when we were researching this, is that the, the number one thing, whether it's a private or a public system, uh, institution, asylum, whatever word is you want to use, the story is always the same. It's like we opened up and we had 415 rooms for patients 
uh, that we could take care of. And then three years later, they're like, we have 7,000 patients. We're freaking the fuck out right now. Uh, so I, I think that's part of the story as well, is just that this problem is so much bigger than we've even attempted to, to wrestle in this country, that every time we do open up any kind of facility that is made to address this, it's been just absolutely overrun with patients uh, almost immediately. Um, I think it's very interesting. I think that also is kind of backed up by some of the stats. I'm sorry, you're about to say something. No, no I was just going to say that says everything that you need to know. That as soon as you create one of these at the market, that's like that is a market demand, right? If you open up a yeah. place that has 400 beds and within three years you're trying to service 4,000 people, that is telling you that there is a need for this that that needs to be served by the market, right? Um, ideally, because I'm not like, like don't ever like I'll, I'll be damned if you guys are going to say I'm trying to carry water for the statist because um, I'm not. Um, it is that shows you exactly the issue that there is such a high demand and ideally you would love to see instead of cramming 7,000 people into a place that was designed to carry 400 people that every, yeah. that other people would sit there and say like, Hey, you know what? There's actually a decent way to make a, an honest day's work and create jobs and provide a good service to our community and help out. So let's open up one of these ourselves and we'll take half of the Right. And you know, it's like, that's what you want to see in that situation. Yeah, it would be nice. Uh, it's not exactly how it played out. Spoiler it is alert. not. <laughs> uh, just to kind of drive that point home of, of how big of an issue this is, too. Uh, and there's a lot of different. And again, how do you measure? Uh, how do you even poll effectively the homeless population, let alone actually measure the level of mental illness within the homeless population? But I saw figures ranging from on the low end, 25 percent to the high end, saying 75 percent of the homeless population is, is uh, <laughs> mentally I, ill. I love that is, spread. You know, I love that. It's like, we, <laughs> we, we estimate that anywhere from a quarter to three quarters of the homeless population <laughs> suffer from mental illness. Congrats, think, like, thank uh, you for casting a wide net on that one. You, you certainly covered it. <laughs> and I think a little bit of that ambiguity in that is they do have a separate category for mental illness that does not include substance abuse. So you can be a non-mentally ill person who's just on, God knows how many drugs who's stuck on the street because you've become completely uh, hopelessly addicted to them. And then how do you tell that person who's just missing all their teeth from years of methamphetamine uses? How do you look them in the eyes and go like, is that schizophrenia or is that just, or is that the, is that just the math? (laughs) Right. And, and that's always such a hard. And I think what's, what's another thing that makes this, this topic a really, I don't know. It's hard to gather popular support. And I, We'll be fully honest and check like I, I try to let everybody know my biases so that you know how to filter the information that I say. And I have fallen into this category. The the homeless population is a population that's very hard to gather popular support for. Right. Because it's like, yeah, I guess I have like existential dread from time to time. Sometimes I freak out about the decisions in life that I'm making. Sometimes I feel like I'm really messing up. Yeah, I've struggled with substance abuse in the past before. Like, yeah, absolutely. All those things exist. But you know what? I've managed to like keep a roof on my head. So why can't you? And it's almost like a survivorship bias that we introduce into where we where we check it. It's like, yeah, we all deal with all of these problems all the time. Like you're not special. Why can't you pull yourself up from the bootstraps? Right. And that's not a that's not a that's not a good neighbor attitude to have, but it is the bias that I have when I deal with this topic. And I just have to check that and I have to be honest about it because the homeless issue is a hard thing to gather popular support for, just like prison reform is. 
it's right because it's like these are these are people either by choice or by circumstances that we of society have deemed aren't worthy of time and resources beyond the bare minimum to either keep them out of sight out of mind or out of our way and it's it's a really hard demographic of people to really try to rally for and i've got to check myself all of the time about that and that's a, a sentiment i've heard shared a lot before and one i've even probably espoused myself that like you hear this thing of like well you know a lot of americans only have yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's a ton of Americans who don't have enough money saved up for like a two thousand dollar emergency. It's it's a lot lower. It's actually half of Americans have less than four hundred dollars in savings. Oh, Jesus Christ! Uh, but they they'll prop that up and then they'll say like, "Well, look how how much how small of an emergency are they away from becoming a homeless person?" And then the counter to that being, "Well, no, because think about what if you if you lost every dollar you had tomorrow and you couldn't pay your rent and you got evicted." How many people can you call and crash on their house before you're actually out on the street? A lot. And it's a lot of people for you or I. Uh, there's a lot of family, a lot of friends, a lot of – but that's not the case for every person. That's not the average experience even necessarily. I think that uh, a lot of us have good family situations, and that's great. That's awesome that Matthew and I can call our parents still today and say, hey, I completely fucked up my life. Can I come stay on your couch? And they would undoubtedly say yes to us. Uh, at least mine would. I haven't really talked oh, to Matt's parents in a yeah, while. No, I'm not sure if they still like him or not. They would. Um, but they're also <laughs> like, I was told very from a from an early age, like my dad told me, do not waste your one jail, your one call from jail on me because I, if you ended up in jail, you deserve <laughs> to be there. So <laughs> I learned from you know, it's like from 16 on, it's like, okay, well, if you get in trouble, don't call Sam. Sam ain't right. bailing you out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, but he would let me go there. sleep on his couch. If I'm right, right. That, or <laughs> that we have friends, I, I'm we're lucky enough that uh, obviously we're charismatic enough to have gotten the seed planted in our head that we could potentially make a living someday talking on the internet. Uh, that's what we're kind of here doing, espousing some ideas that we truly believe in and feel passionate about. But ultimately, we wouldn't be doing a podcast if there wasn't some part of us that had uh, a complete belief in our ch- charisma and influence and ability, and that that is formed from us having a lifetime of probably having made a lot of friends from being somewhat popular right. for, for knowing people in my life that I can, like I said, I have friends that have been the town I live in that I could call up and say, Hey, the wife kicked me out. She's probably not taking me back. I don't know what's going on. Can I come sleep on your couch tonight? And I've got a handful of guys that'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Until you figure it out. Totally down with that. Uh, that's not the case for every human being. Not everybody is, is born with a full deck of cards. Not everybody. Matthew and I both like to uh, think we both stay higher than room temperature excuse me, higher than room temperature IQ. But that's not the case for everybody. Everybody wasn't born with the ability to win over friends everywhere they go. Some people really struggle to make those connections in life. Some people were born into shitty family situations. Uh, so they are a lot closer to falling into homelessness than somebody like Matthew or I might uh, project our lives onto them and say, well, we shouldn't feel sorry for them because oh, there's 20 people I could call to stay on my couch. Uh, yeah, but that's not every human being's experience. Exactly. And that's why I say that I have to check my own bias when it comes to this conversation, because like Flirt said, that this is a societal failure. This is our like mm-hmm. this is a we problem. Right. And this is how we right. as a people, as a society, as Americans, as the community that has to deal with this, how we have prioritized our values, 
our needs and how we have decided to treat our fellow man. And, and what's always really interesting in this one is like, you always, um, even though that like, I'm not, I'm not overly religious by any means. I did grow up very versed in the Christian, in the Christian faith. And there's something biblical about like how you treat the least of me, you treat me, you know, and that, and that one jumps out to me in this particular topic, because this is not a, yeah, congratulations, Matthew. You have good coping mechanisms. Like you function like a normal human being with a normal amount of existential dread with thumbs in the front of look. Congratulations, right? That doesn't make me special. Um, that tells me that there are people that don't have that. It's like you don't get the congratulations. You have normal coping mechanisms with a normal level of anxiety or a normal level of mental illness that you that all of us suffer from. Right? the industrial revolution and its consequences right it's not one of those it's it's a much deeper issue and to say that anywhere from 25 to 75 percent and i know i scoff at that number because it's like wait wait because <laughs> like my least favorite class in college was statistics um i i hated statistics with a fiery passion um in fact i almost i I, I almost changed a major so I didn't have to take it, <laughs> but I ended up taking it anyways. Um, but it, it does go to say that if you have something as high as three quarters of people that are suffering from homelessness right now or experiencing homelessness, whatever the, the proper term to call it, um, that is indicative and it sheds light on something that it, that there's something deeper to this because I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about this conversation. And it's like, if I ended up in a situation that, yeah, okay, I lose everything and I'm homeless, like, you know where I'm staying? I'm staying in my car. Granted, I have a car. I'm staying in a car of, of the job that I just went out and said, like, I, can I scrub toilets here? Like, what do you guys need to do? Like, I have like, I have run some hardships. I need money. I will do whatever it takes to like get, and that's what, like, that's where I'm sleeping. I'm now sleeping in the parking lot of the job I just went to go get. Right. But that's where my mind goes. And I know that a lot of people don't have, but that's like, but that's just where my mind goes. And I have to check that as my own bias and my own experience to say that like, not everybody has, has that same attitude about it or even like the mental capacity to be like, Oh yeah, this is like a reasonable thing to go to your job or your boss and say like, Hey, I just like, can you front me or, or beyond that, like to spin in a positive, like, Hey, well, I don't have to pay rent this month. So now I get to save all of this money <laughs> and I don't have to pay rent on working this job so I can pay rent next month. <laughs> Think about how much crack I can buy not paying rent. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Uh, I did want to throw out too, that, I mean, uh, in the same, uh, context the general population numbers were a lot higher than i thought as well for mental illness i mean it was like 18 to 25 percent so if you're going on the low end of of the homeless population like it's not even that crazy of a stretch i mean it's still definitely a statistical marker uh, a significant statistical difference but i was a little bit stricken to be honest and i know when i said that number to you earlier you were kind of like no one in five sounds about right uh, but that for me, for whatever reason, I've never heard that one in five Americans have suffered from mental illness or never absorbed that information properly uh, to where that stuck out to me quite a bit. That was interesting um, just to, to see a number that high. 
Uh, I do think also I wanted to mention as well, I, I think I jotted down a quote that I'm not going to bother to continue to to read through because I don't think it's all that interesting necessarily. And I want to get to the meat of this eventually as we're approaching an hour in already and are still in our like opening statistics. Whatever, it's here. our show. We're going to do what we want. <laughs> this is fair. Uh, so mental illness is, is greatly defined off of this fourth uh, edition of the Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or dsm 4 uh, I thought it was interesting because in the opening of it, I tried to read it uh, and I, I started to, for one, it was far too long for me to have read in the amount of time I needed to read for this episode. Uh, but I'd also seemed like I had to sign up for everybody's goddamn email list in order to get access to Absolutely. this document, which I didn't really want to do at the moment. Uh, I think I even started to sign up for one. And after I filled out like my third page of qualifying i was like You're okay like, no. we're closing this out i'm not doing this i'm tired of putting all of my freaking information here to read a an educational article that should be free on the internet i don't understand uh <laughs> but they did have at least i was able to read kind of the first page of it uh and there was i thought very interesting they take a moment to pull back and say like hey we do want to take a moment to acknowledge that we see this ultimately as an expansion and as a positive growth in the field of psychology but in edition three of this book, we had 12 diagnosable disorders, and now we have several hundred in edition four. So I, I wonder, too, this is such a, a new field for us still, something we're still, and like I said earlier, mentioned briefly, not that long ago, we considered this to be like a physically contractual uh element get the in crazy that like yeah you touch somebody with the crazies you might get it yourself uh that was like in the 18th century we were still saying stuff like that so it's not all that incredibly long ago that we just have zero understanding of what mental illness is um but even then we've seen and, and you would expect that i mean it's not crazy to think there are more uh categories of mental illness in the third to the fourth that's probably another great example we're not on copy 75 of these books We've we've put out four, and I think there's some talk maybe of them even switching over to a fifth one, as I noticed uh, recently as we were researching this. But it's still like we're at most in our fifth iteration of the mental illness books. So that's how long we've like really been writing this stuff down and thinking about it. Uh, but at that same point, when you see something expand that precipitously and when you have a field of people who make money off of diagnosing these things – they are going to look to expand that field and to find more diagnoses. You would expect somebody within that field maybe to be apt to over-diagnose people uh, because it does behoove them. It's something, it's what they live their entire life doing, uh, for one. So you're going to be looking for it everywhere you go. Uh, dog trainers look at everybody's dogs when they go to the dog park, I'm sure, because that's the life they live. Uh, somebody who works in a as a, a haircut, uh, what is the word for a barber or a hairstylist? A, a hairstylist. Uh, there's a cosmetic something or other degree though. That Buta, cosmo Buta, Buta, beautician. Yeah. Something like that. I think there's a new one though, that has to do with cosmol a cosmologist maybe. No, that doesn't sound right. Anyway, Sounds like stars. We're, we're in the muds here, <laughs> but uh, uh, somebody who cuts hair for a living probably judges everybody's haircuts. Uh, and in the same way that you're going to get people who work in the field of psychology and diagnosing mental illness are going to see mental illness as a, higher degree than the rest of us. Um, so I just thought it was interesting. And that was part of the opening of this manual, which I give them credit for as well, to recognize that own tendency within the field and to say, hey, we do want to recognize. Um, and I think that's also an interesting part of this conversation, just because it is worth knowing, hey, this is a new field that is growing, that is expanding. So 
when we see an increase across the board in every single country in the number of mental illness per capita, some of that may also be uh, informed by us creating more categories that we consider to be mental illness in the first place. Yeah, there's there's a lot to that where one, it could actually be just a um, a product of recognition, right? Where if you if you start looking at a society or individuals in the society that are, like you said, a little bit more finely tuned to know what to look for, you're going to start spotting it a little bit um, more often. That's fair and, too. They're all also going to be apt to spot literal mental illness before I spot it rather than also exactly. just and, fabricating it. And then it also makes you wonder too, if like these, cause uh, one of my favorite psychology classes was abnormal psychology. I loved that class because it, it dealt with all of this. It was severe mental illness, right? It's like, what happens, like what's going on in the brain of a human being that is completely derailed by any sort of normal standard. And, and even my, right. This is 2013 at Texas tech. Right. And even then, like my teacher was really cool. She's like, I'm not here to talk about like, what it was is, mostly about is homosexuality. Not... Tech was pretty conservative school. It was... Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was it was a really interesting class because you do start to dive into these, and it makes you wonder, like, how many of those, like, if there's 140 of them now, or whatever the number is, like, how many of them are are just subsets or varying degrees of those original 12 that they talk about, right? Where now all of a sudden, instead of looking at it as this black and white on or off binary system, you start to look at it as a, a, a more spectrum based um, approach to where it's like, okay, well on this end of it, you have like what is what starts to present as the start of schizophrenia. And by the time that you go 12 steps down and there's a different name for every one of those steps, by the time you get to 13, you are now like a full blown schizophrenic. And I wonder like how much of that has something to do with it. And then there also probably is like the overcorrection of it, but it's also like you said, good on those people for looking and saying like, this is kind of exploded and we acknowledge that it's exploded. So it's like, it's, I see it as like, we're checking our own biases at the door. We're mm-hmm. acknowledging that this has kind of gotten out of control in DSM five. Maybe we can like rein this back. Um, we're beyond that. It's like, it's like, and I know that like the autism, a conversation has a lot to do. Like there's a whole contingent of people that think that vaccines cause autism. I'm not here to even debate that. Cause I have literally no fucking idea. Um, but it also, one of the, one of the concepts though, it's like, has autism skyrocketed or have all the weird kids that we just called weird. Right. Fi- have we like finally like started to put a <laughs> finger on a lot of very weird people in the past, they just like, oh, that's the odd kid, you know. And it's like now you can say like, oh, no, they're on the spectrum, right? Yeah, how many is it uh, one of those? How many things? nerds back in the day were getting wedgies and getting stuffed into toilets that were just unfortunate autistic kids who had not been diagnosed yet? Exactly, because we like, don't know. What look to at look this for. dork. Right. Exactly, and it's it's one of those things. So I I, I think also in this conversation, it's it, I try to approach it with a it's neither here nor there attitude it just is what it is right and i know that that's like the millennial favorite saying and one of these days we're going to run out of those and i guess we're going to rampage when we do but until then it you know let's just call it what it is yeah and it's uh i mean it's a complex thing and it's also an ambiguous subject matter I mean, what is mental illness? Where do you draw the line for what mentally ill is? What is just slightly abnormal behavior? Um, I did want to also say that, um, to your point, they they did mention 
the bifurcation of these diagnoses. Um, and he did admit that, hey, this is a natural thing. In order to get high up in this field, one thing you have to do is write a peer-reviewed paper. Absolutely. And one great way to write a peer-reviewed paper is to come up with a new type of mental illness. So there, there is going to be a lot of this kind of bifurcation of one particular diagnosis that becomes seven different labels um, because that's how people get credit and get to sell books and become rich scientists and not just poor scientists at the university. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and, no, but that's also, and I appreciate that too, because there are so many aspects is because I'm like, as you guys, of course, know, like I am such a huge history dork. I love with any topic that I want to like start researching or I have like an inclination of something that might be interesting. Somebody has wrote a, a dissertation on it, right? Somebody's written a book that they had to, to do years of research and stand in front of their accredited professors and defend to have that book published and for them to get a PhD, right? Like we did the episode about, uh, um, you know, um, Ostpolitik about how like, uh, Russia's integration of gas into, um, a post world war II um, Western Europe. Right. Well, a lot of the material that we got, somebody wrote a dissertation of it. It was called red right. gas, right? <laughs> somebody spent, somebody thought it was so, or deemed it necessary or a viable way to get their PhD that I'm going to write and research a book about Russia's infiltration of natural gas into Western Europe. And now we have a book about it and I'm, and for that, I'm thankful. I have no quarrels about it. <laughs> Made that podcast episode extra easy on us. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> so I wanted to, to kind of punch home too, before we, we get into some of the like history of it in this particular country and, and our ideas on which direction it should go. Um, there was a big kind of breakthrough, like the, uh, the enlightenment, the Renaissance type period of mental uh, health, awareness. Um, and it was this idea of moral treatment is the term that kept getting thrown around. Um, this wasn't all that long ago. This was in fact in uh, 1792, Philippe Pinel took over of the uh, Bechetre uh, hospital in Paris for the mentally ill. Uh, and he had the kind of a radical view on the field at the time. This idea of moral treatment was whether he was kind of the fore uh, front of pushing this. There were other guys. I know an English man named Tuke was one of them. Um, I know very little else about him. That wasn't just me like name calling. I'm just saying, if you're interested in the subject, I know that was another one of the kind of fathers of this line of thinking. Uh, but this kind of in radical, uh, idea of, of moral treatment, uh, was them proposing that we shouldn't, uh, specifically chain up the mentally ill, uh, beat them and otherwise physically abuse them. That instead we should, uh, call for kindness and patience, along with recreation, uh, recreation walks and pleasant conversations. Uh, so it's a pretty wild thought to be like, I mean, you don't want to just beat these retards into submission to make sure they act right. Uh, but, <laughs> and again, that was 1792. That's 250 years ago. That is like your great, great, great grandfather uh, at that time had the prevailing idea that like mental illness was a physical ailment that could be contracted by physical contact. So we should chain up every dumb dumb in our town and make sure they don't touch any of the regulars uh, and turn us into dumb dumbs as well. So it, it is, you know, just kind of to drive home that exact point that like, this is a something we're still figuring out as a society to act like we have figured out mental illness uh, is, is a crazy thought in my mind. Um, and it's not that incredibly long ago that we were just straight up taking pickaxes and taking people's brains out of their heads to make sure that they behave better. Uh, and that particular behavior came after moral treatment was instituted into 
uh, the, the equation. So that was one of the moral upstanding ways to take care of these patients was the lobotomy. Uh, that was one of the acceptable, like less oppressive ways to treat the mentally ill, uh, rather than electric shock therapy and, uh, like orgasm treatments that they did to psycho uh, psychotic women. Uh, they're like, let's do something a little less mean to these mentally ill people. Let's take a piece of metal and hammer it into their frontal lobe. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole different thing, but on the moral treatment, I, uh, Logan and I were discussing this before we hopped on and started recording, but uh, one of my favorite movies, top five for um, personally is Shutter Island. And I love the, and I'm always reminded of the scene where the doctor that runs the island talks, he talks about, I have this radical idea that if you treat these patients with love and understanding that you might be able to actually reach them instead of beating them into submission. And even in 1950, that is a wild like, and that's the thing, like, even in 1950, <laughs> that is a wild assumption to to throw out there on how you can deal with the behavioral issues of the severe mental ill. And I know, like, it's it's abbreviated in all, like, these papers and research, SMI. Um, but it, it does go to show you, though, like, how new everything is. Bill Bryson actually has a fantastic book and I recommend that everybody read it or listen to it. It's called A Short History of Nearly Everything. And he chronicles just how new everything that we actually know about the world is, right? Like how new the ideas of chemistry are and how long it took for us to actually like get a periodic table of elements together and how long it took for us to like figure out to try to like try to triangulate the circumference of the earth. And oh, and it was these expeditions and it took all of this time and energy to learn this one very basic thing that you and I assume as a mainstay of common knowledge because it's taught to us in a fourth grade textbook but for hundreds of years thousands of years like science it baffled scientists and then along comes somebody and figures something right like plate tectonics right you i my guess if you're listening to this and you're anywhere from like 30 25 to 45 like your parents were in their teenage years before we discovered plate tectonics were a thing, you know, like that's how new that idea is. Like plate tectonics is a product of the 1960s <laughs> or hell. I saw a, uh, uh, within the last two or three years, there was a Bill Maher podcast where he's once he had kind of turned against mandating the vaccines. Uh, and somebody was like, well, the science is settled. We, we know the science and he, he brought up, which we're still haven't like named this organ yet, but scientists have now found, a sublayer of our skin. That's not exactly your skin. That seems to be some kind of other sensory organ within our system. So it's like in the year 2021 ish, we're still finding out there are new organs inside the human body. That's how much we've really figured out. I don't and tell so me the science is settled. Like, right. The science is settled. It's definitive. It's like, we don't even know what's inside of us. We haven't even cataloged the, uh, the DNA process yet. We don't even know why the thing that makes us what we makes us, how it works, why it works. We call a vast section of it junk DNA. Maybe they're right. Maybe it does nothing. Or Maybe we don't know jack shit about DNA and that incredibly complex thing is actually doing a lot of things that we're not aware of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's I love that. It's like, the, oh, the science is settled. And it's like, well, all that takes is actually one person to disprove the mainstay scientific theory and zeitgeist science. of an entire population. Yeah, the science was settled that Egypt was the center of the Earth for a long time and that the Earth was the center of the solar system. You know, it sure was. Those were scientific uh -huh. facts. 
they they were and i think it is interesting though is like that that moral treatment is this kind of breakthrough and it makes you wonder though about this sli- this like sliding scale and the slow creep that we have had as a people that as we're becoming more technologically advanced are are we becoming more like ethically aware as a society are we becoming more morally competent as people and because you you look back at in history and look at like all of the barbaric things that ancient kings did and if you gave them nuclear weapons you think that hannibal would hesitate for a second to nuke rome right but you give nuclear weapons to people in 1945 and yeah we nuked japan twice but then after that everyone's like ooh, maybe that's not a great way to go about about this whole game of geopolitics right it's like yeah i know that we could fry moscow tomorrow but should we you know like is like and that's what i'm talking about like this this like this raising of human awareness and like ethical behavior and it makes you wonder now like are the problems that plagued us in the past with dealing with severe mental illness in a free market system prior like let's just say in the 1800s are we now better equipped to handle them today in 2023? And that is, I mean, an argument we've made. We did an entire episode on that in the past of like the sophistication level of a society required in order to live in an anarchical system that you do have to have a certain amount of sophistication and, and uh, uh, moral upstanding ideas within your community for anarchy to work in the first place. So it does kind of come with like this, this new age. I don't think anarchy has been, possible in many times in the past because of the threat of like another army the mongols are coming over the hill somebody's got to stop them we need somebody that can put us all together in an army and figure that out immediately we don't have time to have a a a board meeting and take a vote and decide who who wants to go to the army should we go to the army because the mongols Mm. are bearing down on those freaking horses man we got (laughs) to figure something out right now about it but i think that that this this idea of anarchy that I hold on to is something that becomes more and more realistic over time, uh, because we have more information, we have more uh, sophistication as a society, we understand the moral obligations we have, uh, and like we always say, man, a freedom comes with a lot of responsibility. We do have to take up the mantle at some point in time and say, like, no, we are going to do something about this. Um, obviously, we're not one hundred percent there yet because there are, if you haven't noticed, still homeless people. Yeah, a lot of them. And I guess that's a good way to transition to the idea of what deinstitutionalization is. And so in short, like this is just the process that really starts to occur in the late 20th century. Or not late, so let's just call it mid-20th century. It starts like the 1950s. That's a good place to start. Um, that instead of putting people in long-term psychiatric hospitals, you replace that with less isolated community health mental service facilities. Um, you increase care at home, halfway houses, clinics, regular hospitals, and unfortunately, not at all, right? Because there's also something about this too that deinstitutionalization leaves a lot of people that would have been serviced by the state run psychiatric hospital system it now leaves them vulnerable to just fall through the cracks. Like they get the acute care that they need in the hospital when they walk in having a psychiatric break, but there's literally nowhere else to put them. And once they're no longer like now the hospital has to release them and there's no place to actually like 
help them or like try to facilitate long-term care. Right. Yeah. It's even the way you uh, framed it there. It sounds a lot like the way a politician would pitch it where it's like, yeah, we're, we're not just shutting this down. We're opening up the opportunity for more hospitals to open up in your local neighborhoods and for your community to pick up the mantle. And for, we don't have any intention of actually ensuring any of that's happening because what we're doing ultimately is we're stepping away. Uh, and I don't, I mean, Hey, we're free market kind of anarchist believing people over here at this podcast. So I don't think that's always necessarily a bad thing. The problem I think in this particular subject is the way that we did it because they allowed it to become the all encompassing, Hey, here is the, uh, the state solution to it. And let's get rid of all the private sector. And then they were like, uh, by the way, we're pulling the plug on all the money tomorrow because we got to buy more bombs. Yeah. And that is, yeah, no, that's uh, I mean, that that's the rabbit hole that we've, that we spent the majority of the start of this podcast talking about. And so I was able to find a really interesting article from the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics that was published back in October of 2013. And in this article, the author lays out three major causes for deinstitutionalization. Uh, the first one is that the belief that mental hospitals were cruel and inhumane. The second is that they were because, yeah, right. Because it's not that it's not this like it's not a disassociated belief of society, right? There is actually a lot of evidence. Um, and we've got these articles linked in, in the show notes below. But if you start reading some of these and like the accounts of what a mental hospital in the 1870s looks like, it's absolutely barbaric, right? It would, it, some it, rough it, yeah, it's, a, it's not a good place, right? There's nothing good about it in any sense, right? It's like, oh, congratulations. Like you stopped these people from being on the streets and you threw them into a hospital that now tortures and beats them daily. Like, hey. oh, congratulations, and society. Even, we did so much even better. continuing to today, I mean, the, the largest two uh, mental health institutes currently today in America are Cook County Jail in LA and Rikers Island Jail in New York. Cook County, uh, Chicago. Just, Mm, the one I was reading about was LA. Is there a separate one in LA? I don't know. Well, I don't know. Like Cook County is Chicago though. Well, the, the, I believe it was Cook County, LA in, in Los Angeles. Well, no, it, it no, was definitely, no, I in, see. it was definitely in Los Angeles. It's in the notes up there somewhere. Let's see. Well, now it's worth it. Now I've like, I've derailed your point to be like pedantic. So now I got to see, <laughs> we got to see if there is, I definitely put Cook County Jail in Los Angeles, and no, Cook County's in it's Chicago. Well, I believe there's also a Cook County Los Angeles, according to the article that I basically copied and pasted. Fake news. Anyway, wherever the fuck Cook County Jail is, I believe it's in L.A. I'm standing by that because I remember thinking it was L.A. and New York distinctly. Some unnamed county jail in L.A. that has the largest amount of mentally ill patients, as well as Rikers Island in New York. <laughs> um, like there was a story out of uh, out of the, the one in L.A. where they had a mentally ill man. Uh, he's raising, you know, I'm sure he's causing trouble. Well, they locked him in a shower and cranked up the, the heat and just oh. left him in there for two hours. And they I mean, basically boiled him alive. And it's like you have this person who works in a, a correctional facility. They probably make thirty to sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, probably forty-five average. They probably have zero training in dealing with mental illness. 
and they're a little bit fed up, not to say that it absolves them of the, the horrific thing they did. And I, I'm sure they served some time for that and got in trouble for it, but Probably not. they are, are by no means capable of have the tools for, or should be responsible for, I think rehabilitating the mentally ill of this country. It's something that's just been pushed upon them because we don't have a solution as a society at this point uh, that they can turn to. And it's just like, well, now they're in jail. Now they're your problem. Good luck. Uh, while this man tries to grab you through the bars every day and let's see how you handle it. Yeah, that no, it says a lot about that um, because it's not like deinstitutionalization where there, there's there's arguments on both sides. And um, of course, we have the articles linked below on kind of both where some people praise it and other people are apt to point out the shortfallings and the consequences of it. Um and, you know, because that's like the first one, it's like the belief that mental hospitals are cruel and inhumane. And that does not make the prison systems in 2023 makes it any better to put these people yeah, a, in a little throwing the baby out with the bathwater type of thing. Yeah, it, it really is. That's a this is a great example of it. The second one is that they hoped that these new anti psychotic medications offered a cure. Um, and we'll get into that in just a second. And the third was something that we all kind of understand. Uh, It's a simple desire to save money, right? Right. At the end of the day, like these state-run mental hospitals are expensive. It's not cheap. There's nothing cheap about any of it. And there's a simple desire to save money. I don't know that even a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were saying it was easier to deal with people who were lobotomized. I'm sure there are a lot of people that said, you know, it's, it's better for society if they're lobotomized. But what they didn't say is it's, Hey, it's way better for the patient. I'm sure it got thrown out there a little bit, but I think most people looked at him and they were like, we made a, made a pretty, I mean, look at Kennedy. We made a pretty rough call there to lobotomize our sister in order to make our lives easier. And I don't think that was morally the right thing to do. And you can see by the way it influenced him later in his life that he probably didn't think that was the right thing to do. Um, But that is the cheap solution. What's the easiest way to get rid of the homeless problem? Lobotomize all the homeless. So they're not on the street. Right. Go or, yeah, lo- lobotomize them in the institution. So and and that's one of those things too where you I think that I think maybe the crux of what I my issues that I'm having with kind of this idea of like laissez-faire free market will always solve it is that I am a firm believer that that is true, but you need good rational actors that actually have the interest of the person on the other side of the transaction at heart and as soon and as soon as you enter as soon as you get an actor with capital that does not have the good interest of the other person on the on the side of the transaction at heart well like congratulations now we've created instead of a a state-run hellscape we've created a free market run hellscape right it doesn't doesn't it doesn't absolve the fact that it's still a fucking hellscape it doesn't make it any easier it doesn't go down any smoother Knowing, well, well, at least the at least the free market helped create this terrible dystopia <laughs> that we live in, right? It's like at least, oh, well, thank God the free market was able to help us get here, right? Um, it's not that, and I know that like those arguments, like, well, it's not always true free market. I get that, but I think that we also have to like grow up to a certain degree if anyone's going to take us seriously in in the realm of political discourse and the discussion of intellectual ideas that we're going to have to start like acknowledging like we as people that believe in freedom and the free market, like we have to be the first to acknowledge the shortcomings of our system. And then we can address them head on instead of trying to like double down 
on just like, well, that's just not the real free market. Because at that point, we sound just like the communist. Like, that wasn't real communism. It's like, well, congratulations. Not real communism killed 25 million people in Russia between the years of 1917 and 1939, right? It's like, does that make it any better? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't help it go down. And I think that this is one of those things that we have to acknowledge that, okay, congratulations. If, if there is a free market hellscape that's created, well, then we should, we should just acknowledge it. We should shoot straight. If we talk about intellectual consistency and having a better idea, we should be able to call out when we've got it wrong. And that's exactly why that quote by Flirt that we opened up with was so perfect for this, is that it is a societal problem, a cultural problem. This is something that we have dropped the ball on as a culture, that we clearly just don't care enough to make something happen for this, whether that's the free market or us forcing the government to take a hand in it. Uh, We have just simply had a complete failing as a society to address this issue for whatever reason. And I don't have an answer for what that reason is, but it's there. The reason there's shit on the streets in San Francisco is because of us collectively. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, no, it's so, it's so important that we just, I don't know, like the truth shall set you free. And I think that it's probably like, we got to start being honest about this because I'm also tired of like dealing in the realm of, I don't know, like national discourse because it's something that unfortunately I pay attention to. And I hate that every time somebody like brings up libertarians on as a viable third party option, like everybody just scoffs and laughs at like, <laughs> like the libertarian, like, okay, like <laughs> good, good luck Republic. Oh, you want to vote for the Republicans that like weed, right? Because that's how a lot of people have like distilled libertarianism down to. They think there were Republicans that like weed. And it's such a, it's such a intellectually dishonest um, portrayal of what we believe in. But I also think that at this point we have probably fueled, our own demise and the stereotype of how people look at us because of these things are here when you just like, it's just like the same, like if you don't take a communist serious, like, well, that's not real communism. If you say, well, it's like, well, that's not the free market, but that's not the real free market. Okay. Those things all might be true, but it does not help push the praxis of what we're trying to actually implement in the world any further. Yeah. What does it actually do for me and cry about it all day? It can be, nobody's fault it's not my system it's not my belief my, no, right. no, 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 no. but okay well if you have this perfect system why don't you actually go implement it and let's uh solve this problem <laughs> yeah and that's and that's also not a fair starting point but i don't i don't know that's like i just yeah that's um, i'm gonna i'm gonna derail real derail myself so <laughs> what's also interesting too in this it now like breaking off of a tangent of one of the beliefs that led to deinstitutionalization is this idea that these new antipsychotic medications actually offer a cure. And this was a really interesting rabbit hole that I went down in the research of this episode because I started reading a lot of medical journals and articles about all of these different drugs and and kind of like summaries of them and histories of them or studies of certain drugs and the adverse effects like um and like how a a low dose how there's no like long-term prognosis difference in like a low dose or a medium dose but a high dose actually showed a lot of beneficial behaviors but with high doses you get these adverse side effects so how do you weigh like okay well do we give them a medium dose and it doesn't really do anything or do we give them a high dose and hope that right like those are some really interesting articles to read um because it, it leads you into this fascinating um 
world of like human consent and ethics and medical testing and all of this, you know, it's, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. And the, the finances of uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry as well. I mean, it's uh, no big shocker that the pharmaceutical industry is one of the largest lobbyists within this country, that they have their hands in, in the, uh, I mean, we're one of the very few countries in the world that allow medications to advertise like their products on television. Ask your doctor about yeah, whether right. like something that Ventraquil is right for you. It's like, no, my doctor <laughs> should tell me if Ventraquil is right to me, right? It's like, my doctor should know. <laughs> you would think, but I mean, why do you need that when Bear Aspirin's paid all this money for the Super Bowl commercial so you can know exactly what medication to take? Um, <laughs> or I also think that's a big part about. of this conversation of like the problem. I mean, this is how we actually treat mental illness in this country now is the pill. Hey, here's this pill. If you got depression or this pill, if you got anxiety, here's this pill. If you're schizophrenic, uh, you just got to take the right cocktail. And I think uh, a further evidence of that profit motive driving the pharmaceutical industry, uh, we tend to go with the high doses when, when that uh, scenario you laid out earlier, because it's no big deal. Once you got a bleeding asshole and a, a splitting headache all day and your joints hurt, but I actually have another medication that can take care of all that. You just have to take that medication with that medication. And, and later a couple of years, we'll have a medication for the side effects of that medication. And you just take that medication too. And you just take 50 goddamn pills and spend all your paycheck on it. And eventually we'll get your problem to go away. Yeah. And there's, and this is where I'm split on this one because there is, I'm always, I'm trying to reframe the way I look at things because I've been, in the conspiracy world so long that now I reach and I look for patterns of conspiracy and everything that I look at. And I'm trying to retrain myself not to like not see those, but to also like try to understand that like maybe these people at one time aren't actually evil. Like maybe they are right. And that's a possibility that I'm more than willing to entertain and believe, but it's also like maybe once upon a time, like these people aren't evil, right? So like in 1954, back on this subject, the FDA approves the use of what is uh chloraza, what chlor, chloropraz, chlora, chlorpromazine, chlorpor, wait, <laughs> I am terrible. I am chlorpromazine. Chlorpromazine. I just destroyed that. Um, otherwise known as Thorazine by its like uh, brand name, you know. But it was it was died and it was synthesized to treat severe mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And what's really interesting about this is that, um, well, this is this is from an article. It's it, the the history of psychopharmacology by authors Braslow and, and Martyr. They state, quote. Unlike sedatives and hypnotics, this drug, I'm just going to call it uh, thorazine, thorazine, because I can't pronounce the other <laughs> one right now. <laughs> uh, thorazine was the first psychoactive agent that psychiatrists believed actually treated their patient's mental illness instead of merely masking the underlying disease. And so you've got to put yourself in these scientists' shoes. You're in 1954. You All you've ever been able to do to treat the severe mentally ill is prescribed them a cocktail of drugs that either numbs their mental status so that they're hardly away or yeah, you're just like, you're just sedating these people. You're making zombies. Yeah. You're zonking that's, these people out. of That's their all you're that ever doing is you're making zombies. You're zonking them out. You're just, and to think that all of a sudden, like there's this new drug that's been synthesized that actually has the potential to help people 
that have these severe mental illnesses, right? Like that's probably a very exciting thing, right? And something tells me like these doctors in there, like I, I have such a hard time. Like if you're going to paint a picture, one, yeah, you can paint the picture that they're evil and they know that all of a sudden the profit motive is going to become outrageous and they're going to get mega rich off this. And, or they're just scientists that are trying to, they're, just trying to synthesize things and they stumble upon. And actually the, the, the way they stumble upon this is actually fascinating. I, I recommend that you read it because um, it's too long to kind of, you know, give a quick synopsis of, uh, or they're like looking at like oil and like dye um, byproducts and they come across this. And then all of a sudden they're able to synthesize it in heavy dose and like, Holy shit. Like I think that we could actually treat mental illness. So, right. So instead of like, viewing it through this very evil lens, I think it's probably realistic to say like, these are people that are very excited about their work, right? It's, you can say that like scientists at Los Alamos are very excited about their work. And when they create the first atomic bomb, when it detonates, they're like, Oh, fuck. That's actually, <laughs> Oh, so that's what we've been doing. It's like, I've actually been just really excited, excited about science for the last four years, but this is the result of my science. Well, and to be fair, uh, the guys who are really profiting and really driving what they're researching up at uh, like Bayer Medical Incorporated, it's not the scientist. <laughs> you know, the scientists work for the med- the pharmaceutical industry. They are not the pharmaceutical industry. They do the research. They do the, the synthesization. They try to figure out the medications that they're paid to figure out. And the person that's paying for them to figure it out is the, the executives at all these pharmaceutical boards. So that incentive base for the pharmaceutical industry is not the incentive base for the scientists who are good guys who want to try to figure it out. Those guys go get a job at a laboratory that has resources that happens to be a bare aspirin or one of these gigantic conglomerates. Uh, and they are told, hey, look into this. This is what we want you to research. And and when they find something like that, they go, oh, this is amazing. I found this cure. I found uh, this this uh, uh miracle drug that can save everybody with this affliction and the pharmaceutical company goes that's awesome we're going to patent that and that's now a hundred thousand dollars a shot right and and just to uh just to drive that point home on this from the same article by 1956 more than four million patients in the united states were taking the drug yielding 75 million dollars in profit in 1955 alone for this company that had created um thorazine over the next decade, the company's net sales jumped from 50, 53 million to 347 million by 1970. So this is that's exactly what we're talking about. This profit-based model that is an incentive by the free market. And that's that's kind of what I'm trying to push and that we need to examine, right? Like it is a it is is a free market incentive that pushes this company to synthesize this and then probably overprescribe it. Why? Because it makes them money. And we can't like be childish about this and hide from it anymore. Right? We've got to confront this head on. We've got to acknowledge that it's like, you know what? The free market actually laid out every honeypot for a phar- pharmaceutical company to develop more and more drugs and create an industry that by 2011 topples 28 billion dollars worldwide i mean hey and i think we said this in a recent episode but i mean a a good another good example of this is kind of the transitioning thing where we saw the the uk was 
way ahead of America when it came to transitioning people uh, who identified as the opposite gender. They were a lot more accepting of it to the point where I even knew some transgender friends of mine who were like planning on moving to England because they thought it was going to be a better environment to be a trans person in. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. Uh, but that was the perception out there because of their early research and their early transitioning efforts. Now, America came on a little bit later and has greatly surpassed the amount of people we transition from the UK. We've also seen the UK now take a step back because they've seen a generation who's been transitioned. They've seen some negative effects and they've seen some of the, uh, the alternatives to a botched surgery or a surgery that doesn't go that well, or a surgery that doesn't have the desired effect for the person and continues their, their mental struggle along with now a new physical struggle. Uh, but what they've done because they don't have a capitalist system that encourages a profit margin in their medical system, it's pumped the brakes a little bit. And they're like, Hey, we need to make sure we're actually doing what's right for these patients, but not in America. In America, it goes up every single year because we have a profit margin incentive there within this capitalist market that that is what's going to be encouraged. And I think that that's safe to assume amongst uh, and across the board in a, a capitalist free market society, you're probably going to have more snake oil salesmen than you do in a communist society. Absolutely. Of course you will. And I think that that's, that's the risk that you run. And it, it's not that it is, I think maybe this is one of the things that I've, I've just kind of like started, like, I don't understand why we treat the free market as a benevolent God, so to speak. Right. Cause we always talk about it with a benevolent undertone. And I think that we should just talk about it. Like it is it's neutral, right? It's a tool. It's an, it's an idea. It's not, it's not inherently good or evil. Um, I think that it, certain ideas are inherently evil, right? I think communism is inherently evil. I think fascism is inherently evil. I, but I don't think that the free market is inherently good. Right. And maybe that's right. my issue with it. And I, it just kind of came to me um, just now. that, like, I think that's my problem with the way that libertarians or this side of the argument portrays the free market. We treat it like the benevolent God or the, um, you know, benevolent, benevolent uh, God King Marcus Aurelius, right? It's not, it's just yeah, a tool. I've, I've had that thought before and, and maybe to kind of punctuate exactly what you just said, it's uh, the entire story of human beings is like stories of oppression and overcoming oppression. Uh, and every system does have somebody typically or at least has the capability of somebody to oppress somebody else uh that's why i think things like fascism and communism are greater threats because you can concentrate that into one person's hand and one dictator one uh party that runs the whoever decides to hand out the resources in the communist system they can become corrupted and they can become a, a very powerful overnight powerful nightmare for everybody else whereas in a capitalist system it's you know, maybe it's the clever taking advantage of the dumb a little bit, uh, the, but there is still people being taken advantage of. I think the the benefit of it is like, well, OK, but how difficult is it without influencing the government, which is another whole can of worms of why we're right. in as we are, is now those rich capitalists do control the government as well <laughs> because they've been able to lobby through it. Um, but it's much more difficult, especially generationally, when no matter how much money Jeff Bezos makes, at some point, Jeff Bezos' son or Jeff Bezos' board of directors uh, takes over and probably better if it's a board of directors, but especially when it's passed on a lineage line and it's like uh, you, Jeff Bezos Jr., now have the infathomable wealth of your father. 
he's probably not going to be as smart as his father to to be able to hang on to all that without lobbying and using the governmental systems to make sure that he holds onto that money forever. Um, so at, at the very least, uh, the the argument is not that it's this kumbaya, everything's great. We're all working together to make sure everybody has a better life, but rather you your uh, oppression comes through your own ability to be an absolute rube. I guess on some level. <laughs> yeah. And no, cause no, that's a, actually a really good way to put it because it's not like, like I said, I'm not here like, you know, carry water for any ideas that we absolutely loathe. Right. I don't want any way to misconstrue what I'm saying. Um, it also makes me wonder too, that this is an idea that just popped in my mind that I have done no research, but I'm now curious about is like, how much is the, I wonder what the lobbying impact of the pharmaceutical company is in 1956 or 1950. Right. Like, is it actually this massive entity that can unduly buy an, its unfair share of support in legislation in 1954? Or is like the synthesis of this drug kind of the catalyst to what creates the modern pharmaceutical company and industry that we know today because of the initial market success? of this particular drug because the country is already looking for an answer to the institutionalization, right? Like it's all of a sudden like, like, cause it has to start somewhere, right? The lobbying, the, the, the pharmaceutical company doesn't just overnight become one of the largest lobbying entities in this, this beast that becomes anathema to human health overnight. Like it has to start somewhere. And it yeah, makes you wonder, question. I don't, like, I don't know. Like in 1954, or in 1952 or whatever year that they actually like send this into FDA approval, like how much sway do they really have? And I don't know the answer. Maybe they have a ton of sway, but maybe they don't. And maybe this is now maybe we're looking at the start of what will become the Leviathan of the pharmaceutical company that we know and loathe today. But it's not like it's always been there, right? Like once upon a time, it's not a thing in America. And it, it has yeah, to grow good. and it, it makes you wonder, like, is this the thing? And now all of a sudden, when you put it in that framework, it's not that these pharmaceutical companies were absolutely evil and designed and desired to take over the world. But it's like maybe a company got really stoked about this drug that they thought they could do some good with. And the consequences of that is now all of a sudden they have massive amounts of profit that they can now go lobby their right. counterparts in Congress to start pushing drugs like MAOIs, because in this decade, this is where you start to see all of these drugs synthesized, MAOIs, antidepressants, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, benzodiapamines, like these all, these are all things that come into existence in the 1950s. So it makes you wonder how powerful are they in 1940, 30, and is their power really derived from this taking advantage of a market incentive to try to solve a problem that is the institutionalization of the mentally ill. I guess uh, just a thought. Chloropromazine is probably just like harder to use in a rap song than benzo. That's probably why I'm more familiar with benzoatomines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. 
<laughs> There's a long list of drugs there that would be pretty hard to rhyme with, I imagine. So Benzo <laughs> was probably a, a godsend to the rap community. <laughs> Benzo's easy. <laughs> I can rhyme Benzo with Lorenzo. With <laughs> an extend Lambo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots of lots of. No, that's a that's a good question. I don't know the history of the lobbying system in this country well enough to make that claim. My inclination would be that the pharmaceutical industry has had a pretty strong uh, lobbying background. Uh, but I'm basing that just on kind of my gut feeling. I have no idea what it looked like in 1954 or 1956 and and how much this this influenced it or other way around, you know, cart before the horse kind of thing. And maybe it's uh maybe there's not as simple as answer as one or the other was the catalyst for the other or that they grow together. Just, yeah, right. These were steps along the way uh, to it becoming the giant conglomerate monster that it is today. Uh, that causes us to buy weed killers that kill natural forming heart medication on the ground uh, that are owned by the same corporations that produce heart failure medications now. Absolutely. And I think that it's just important to point out that oftentimes these things don't start as malicious. I think sometimes things do, right? Sometimes I think, <clears throat> I think you can't try to, you, some, even your most generous, interpretation of historical facts starts like well these guys are just fuckheads and they're evil right sometimes you come to that but i think that it's it's very hard to boil down all of human history and the behavior and actions of individuals even in institutions and corporations as evil to start with and i, I don't know i i and maybe i'm naive to give them give people such a wide pass but i also have no right it's always like I'm I'm always a fan of what Dan Carlin talks about or he always talks about think of what these people have lived through. Yeah, sure it's it's nice to eat it's nice to condemn the 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 Eisenhower administration for all of the decisions they make but I don't know. I didn't have to live through all of that. I didn't come of age in World War 1 in the trenches and then and then live through the Great Depression and then have to go, you know, fight a war i didn't have to do any of that i get the luxury of learning about this in a classroom in lubbock texas in 2010 <laughs> right like how and who and who am i to judge these people and i think that i i think that you we should be able to extend that same type of generosity to the people that synthesize this drug right like maybe maybe they have terrible intentions and we're going to enslave the world's population by creating this medical industrial health complex and with every drug that we prescribe we're going to have to create three more to solve the problems of that and like yeah we've got it or maybe they were just really stoked about something that they thought that they could genuinely help somebody and then the consequences of that lead us to here and maybe much like we have discussed in the past being free comes with a large amount of responsibility and when you open up a free market and there's profit incentive we need to be able, sophisticated enough as a society to take into account that there is a profit motive for this person and that they are going to be exploiting me for that. And I have to do my own calculations and my own uh, math in my head to decide what the best way to do this is. And I think part of that too is over time, you see some corrections. I mean, we, again, how long have we been prescribing medication for mental illness? We were chaining people up in 1792. We're so I don't know how long ago it was after that. In the 40s. So we've only been really testing out these medications for 100 years, probably. Not even. It's 50 years. Or it's 70 years. years at this point. Right. Yeah, so 70 years. What are they even, even if they are trying to be altruistic and great, and, you know, they're obviously we're kind of laying out that they're not. 
But even if they were 100% trying to do exactly the right thing, the best thing for people, they're probably still going to get it wrong at this point because they only have 50 years of research. We don't even know what multiple generations of, of use of these drugs look like. Uh, and again, most of these drugs aren't, it's not like they've been around for those 70 years. You know, they've come out with new drugs. They've come out with new iterations, new synthesized versions of it right. because they've tried to improve upon it. So you're going to continue to see that a lot too. And and even if they are trying to do the right thing, they're still going to send people down the wrong path just simply because we don't know all the answers yet. Absolutely. In one of those articles, it talks about um, like the miracle of SSRIs in the late 80s, where after looking at 30 years of these psychotropic drugs that they've been synthesizing and prescribing, they found a better way and a better drug to administer for certain illnesses, right? And and this is also, also something too that's worth noting. And then I've got to take a, a quick break to refresh my drink and pee. But um, it's what's really interesting is that there is a purpose to this, that it's not like, like there are certain people like Logan and I know this person, I won't say anything um, like any further, but it's like, if he didn't take his medication, you knew. And it was like, yo, go take your medication. And it's not that you want to see this person like under the thumb of big pharma. It's like, you literally need to take your medication so that you can function. Right. It's not a malicious thing. It's not a, oh, we need to like coddle and make sure that we, it's like, no, like go take your meds. Just, just go take your meds. It's actually better for getting on my nerves. And if you're not on that medication, the next five minutes, I'm going to get that butter knife and we're going to do an at home lobotomy. (laughs) And it's like, and and I know you make a joke of it, but it's like, there are certain people. And I think that it's important to point out that there are, there is a portion of the population that is actually served. And is probably better off, right? Like I have no, I have no moral claims to know what is good for people. I have no idea. I struggle what is good for me. Um, so I'm not going to sit here and say like this is good for other people and this is what we should do. But there is a lot of, there's a lot of research coming out that certain people really do benefit from like a small to moderate dose of lithium from day to day. There are certain people that actually do benefit from taking an SSRI every day because it really does correct a a acute and severe real chemical imbalance in their brain now have we over prescribed it absolutely have we over prescribed it because there is a market incentive to over prescribe it absolutely see the opioid addiction of the 1990s if you really want a recent case study of it but we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not a one or the other. It's always evil. It's always good. There are shades right. in all of this stuff. And we have to dive into the nuance. And we have to be okay with being lost in the nuance. And being okay with the nuance like in this situation and then moving one degree to the left and be like, well, the nuance, it's not okay now because there's a whole different situations that play into effect. Like we have to be okay with being lost and diving into all of those nitty gritty details of all of these aspects, because otherwise we're doing the exact same thing as everyone else shooting out marketing slogans. I was thinking about making the joke as you were saying, uh, like some people really benefit from a small dose of this every day, a small dose of that every day. I was about to say like, I think I greatly benefit from that small most of, dose of marijuana that I take every day. And then you said, do we overprescribe it? Yes. No, it, joke still works. I think. Yeah, uh, right. Is... Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I think it still lines up. All right. Let's take a quick potty break then. All right. 
So I guess with all that being said, um, it leads us to this kind of next phase of the of the podcast that we want to talk about. And it's really the shift in policy, right? Because there's there's never like Things just don't happen out of the blue, right? There's always a historical context. There's always a long string of events and people involved that actually lead to decisions and legislation, unfortunately, that ends up having these consequences and effects on society. So one of the, so the first one that I think that's worth uh, pointing out, like we had talked about earlier, is this 1963, it was called the Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Health Services um, Construction Act, but it, then make it sure was, everybody knew that wasn't your sarcastic take on the name. Yeah, no, it, that that is the official name. And then later it was like um, kind of revamped. To, it was just called the Community Health Center Construction Act, right? They took out the mental retardation part of it. That's your guess. Um, it was it was shortened to tardation. They just took the re out. <laughs> just make it shorter for them. The old tard school is what we shortened it to over there. <laughs> short, short bus riders. Um, <laughs> and so, in short, this bill allocates federal funding for a shifting towards a community-based approach to the care of psychiatric patients to build mental health care facilities to help facilitate the care of these people in the community as an alternative to the inst- institutionalization of them. And more or less the idea that a community health approach could be achieved if the patients could be treated while working and living at home instead of the institution. And I think there is something, I mean, that would be my natural inclination personally, is that the you're more likely to get good care out of the people who know you personally, who love you, uh, people of your community, Absolutely. Uh, I think I think I say that a lot with the uh, police officers that I think it's crazy when you bring in a police officer from the suburbs and send them to uh, a predominantly black neighborhood and you just go like, oh, it's weird that he got trigger happy all of a sudden. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't be sending that guy. He's not equipped uh, to handle people from that culture. He doesn't know uh, the ways to talk to people from a different culture other than his own. Uh, you'd be much more better, much more better. You'd be much more I about did it again. You would be better off if you got somebody <laughs> from the community who knows the people within that community. Um, I also think it's much better to be dealing with people with mental health within those communities as a police officer. You don't want a cop dealing with somebody who's schizophrenic who he doesn't know they're schizophrenic. It's much better to have a cop who grew up with that guy and like knows his cousin and goes like, hey, you know, seems like you're a little bit out there in left field today. Are you on your medications right now? Are you rather than them just being simply seeing them as a threat. Um, but I think that, that that's an important factor and something that I think is part of the conversation if you are going to make the case for the free market needing to take care of this rather than the institutions of the government. Uh, I think it's better for personalized care. It's better for all of that. Uh, I also think that everything I just said applies much more to people who grew up in wealthy neighborhoods. So it's, it's easy to say all those things. Uh, it's a lot harder to have that support system when you grow up in poverty. And it, it's those are people who get left out of that particular uh, strategy. Yeah, that what you're talking about, like the I saw a video a couple of nights ago that was really interesting too. how how he dealt with it. It was essentially the manifestation of that. There was a call in the park for a disturbed person. Um, so the cop shows up and he's talking to the guy by name. And you can tell like just the way he's standing. It's like. Holy shit, like homeboy has got a gun or he's got a knife. He is clearly dangerous, right? And 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 
No, I, I can pick that up through a video. So I'm sure that the cop who's dealing with him is acutely aware of this. And he and he's talking to him and the guy goes and he, he tries to essentially tries to get, you know, a, a view of what's going on and see his hands and homeboy attacks him with a knife. And um, he doesn't, you know, the officer is able to do enough evasive maneuvers. He ends up getting like a huge gash um, either in his arm or his shoulder. One of the two, like the, the, the guy gets him. But instead of like immediately drawing his his service weapon and shooting the guy, he starts chasing him. And there is a there is a race now at this point, like he is chasing this guy and he has every opportunity. Right. Like if you have that that situation, like somebody from the burbs going to the inner city, that video ends with that guy stopping, pulling out his service weapon and firing six shots in the back of the in, in the running guy's back. However, this he chases him down. You can see him trying to get aim with his taser until he finally gets a good enough shot and he tases the dude. And then he runs up and he gives him an extra tase just to be sure, you know, and then he handcuffs him. But it's like, but that's that's kind of the thing that you can tell that there's a familiarity at the start of the exchange. And that familiarity changes the outcome radically. Yeah, that uh, just the the context of the situation, just to know going into a situation in that small bit of this absolutely is a dangerous, violent person. He just turned and, and swung a knife at you. But I know why this individual is dangerous and violent. Um, I guess you could kind of say that for everybody. As I'm saying that out loud, it just kind of occurred to me like what person doesn't have mental illness that swings knives at people, that shoots at people? Um I mean, you might could make that case and maybe it's just more of an ethereal argument that you, if you're really a smart enough person to extrapolate this idea out, you would be able to say that anybody committing one of those violent crimes is mentally ill and I should handle them with kid gloves. Um, but that's a, a lofty goal for people that we pay less than six figures for in their position on average. Uh, it's hard to find the brightest of the brightest and the smartest of the smartest when you don't pay uh, millions of dollars for that position. So we're we're going to be doomed to have uh, these kind of jock cops for the rest of existence. Uh, Until we, we that, figure out a free market program. incentive, right? If <laughs> right. we want to tout the free market, well, there's actually a way that you could increase that and, and get better behavior. It's one that you pay more um, to attract a higher quality and caliber of person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but on that same level, even just having... With the that's a quite a tangent we went on there. <laughs> the point Fair. being, uh, even if you do uh, all of the uh, the philosophical ideas of what it t- takes to become considered mentally ill aside that we just brushed up against, just simply having that officer there who had an idea that he was dealing with a mentally unstable person when he walked up because he knew that person personally uh, allowed him to take an action that didn't result in the death of a, a civilian simply yeah. over a misunderstanding. And it, it's it starts to see that and and. It, it goes well well beyond a police officer. Um, I mean, there's guys who suffer mental illness that I've seen in the restaurant I work at. Uh, we know them. We know there might be a little bit of a squirrely interaction every once in a while when they're ordering food, but they're there with people that you know have them uh, under control that are going to make sure that they're not completely inappropriate. Uh, you know to trust that and to, to take care of them, and you see them coming in when they come in, and you know to alert the new cashier if they don't know who that person is that hey just so you know this person's going to be a little bit weird just roll with it they're nice people i promise uh versus if somebody comes in and starts acting erratic 
uh, in a restaurant where I'm the only 250 pound adult male in the room. And I see them getting really uh, erratic with my 15 year old female cashier up there. Uh, there's a point where it's like, Hey, you got to start making decisions. If you're going to be take, if you're going to be getting between uh, a threat and a young girl, or if you're going to be, so there's a whole different paradigm you have to operate in when you don't know what those extra elements are that that person with that mental illness is. And maybe that's the way we went, went down probably a completely unnecessary tangent because maybe the, uh, the factor is not whether or not somebody's mentally ill, that's swinging a knife, but to what degree of what range of action they are capable of with their particular mental illness and, and knowing that person, knowing what that uh, spectrum of outcomes might be. Yeah. I, I'm that brings us back to the very kind of that, that recent, uh, event that leads us into this topic, uh, Jordan Neely, right? This is somebody that has been arrested for 46 prior, you know, um, crimes, some of them violence, right? One of them allegedly tried to push a woman in front of the subway that's coming on. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but, um, but still that particular point doesn't negate the fact that this is somebody that has been violent in the past. And then it makes you wonder about the person that steps in and I, Daniel, it's not Daniel Perry. Cause that was the, that was the guy that shot the guy in Texas. I think this guy's name is Daniel Penny. Um, I want to say, but still um, that leads him to actually getting involved. Um, and that's, and yeah, and it's that familiarity um, with it, but it is, but back on like kind of the, and I think that that's, what's important when you, when you look at this, because like I was saying earlier, these people all have experiences and that's one of the greatest sins of history that we do is that we remove people from their contextual experiences. Like you have to remember like what JFK has lived through, what he has witnessed. So when he's talking about like, maybe we should get federal funding to take, you know, to try to implement or provide an alternative to the state run psychiatric hospitals, his sister has been lobotomized by his father. And none of them knew about it. In fact, in fact, like one one day his sister disappears and none of them see her for like 22 years later. Right. Like one day Joe Kennedy makes the decision um, because she's uppity and voluptuous and they can't have a an unwanted pregnancy ruining his his bright, shining kids uh, political future as president and attorney general. So he decides to lobotomize her. He, He unilaterally makes that decision. His wife ends up hating despises him for this decision too. I'm not uh not very familiar with the story. In fact, I don't think I even knew that uh this had happened until today uh doing our research for it. Um I hope that she had more mental illness rather than just being a whore in there that they said no, <laughs> no so so the so the backstory to this is is that when she was so she's the third she's the third oldest of the Kennedy children, but when she was being born, the attending nurse wasn't comfortable actually doing the full birth by herself. So she encouraged. Um, so Rose, uh, Rose is the mother's name or Mary, one of the two, Mary, I want to say uh, either or um, she encouraged the mother to keep her legs closed as long as she could. And then actually ended up resorting to holding the child's head in the birth canal. Oh my while God. Wait. And so like she came out, she came out like an oxygen deprived child and it caused some severe mental issues with it because that's what happens when you try to hold a child in the birth canal it's like oh oven's not ready it needs to hold in it's like no it's coming out 
And that's the backstory to that. So it's actually a nurse's decision that wasn't comfortable giving birth or, you know, facilitating the birth without an attending physician that causes this. And they even talk about like from an early age, Rosemary wasn't like the other children and they tried their best to like get her involved in sailing and, and all of this other stuff that the Kennedys do as the, as the American dynasty. And she just wasn't there because she was deprived of oxygen as a, as a, as a newborn and you guys, God, what a crazy stunt. way to just completely lose your mental capability for life of just mm-hmm. some nurse thought it was a better idea to, I mean, you don't feel comfortable delivering a baby without a doctor present, but you, but you feel, feel comfortable, comfortable like holding a presidency pregnancy. That's yeah. pretty, pretty it's big bold, call there. The bold move. Right. And it shows you. And for anybody that says your individual actions don't matter, they do. Um, that's William James says that act as act as if what you do matters because it does. Um, and this is one of those examples of it. And so she was always a little bit behind and it really came about as like when she was a teenager, right. Um, Joe Kennedy, who's, you know, it's like, I love that. Like in the, no, this is such a tangent. I won't, I won't go in this story. Um, <laughs> but uh, Joe Kennedy decides that he, that she's too much of a liability. So he um, signs her up for a lobotomy and they end up botching the lobotomy. And she comes out with the, the mental acuity of like a four-year-old after that. And he's so ashamed. He hides her away in a, in, in a, like a, a house I mean, you, for a couple of years. And then, what does a good lobotomy look like? What is a well carried out lobotomy? Okay, that's actually a really good question. You know, um, I guess they were hoping that it didn't reduce her to a four year old. We're aiming for twelve. Yeah, or maybe just like, or I'm guessing at that point they're hoping that it actually like corrects her behavior, right? Like all of a sudden, like she's going to come out as like a she's going to come out as a, a bright and shining Kennedy and is going to act the role that she's expected to act like I'm guessing that that's actually what Rosemary you're sailing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's my guess is what they mean by a botched lobotomy. Um, but yeah, so, but so she ends up uh, being transferred to a um, essentially a care facility, a church care facility in Wisconsin. And none of the siblings find out about it until like 20 years later. It's the 1960s before they actually find out what happens to her, to their sister. Hmm. It's actually the uh, most peaceful way that a Kennedy's lost their mind. (laughs) Damn it, dude. (laughs) Shame on you and shame on me for laughing. It's like I'm 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 just as culpable for, you know, encouraging you. But it is it is interesting. And so I guess I say that that's a, a side tangent because and it gives you some context about why JFK is actually focused on providing community care for these people instead of the institution, because his sister was lobotomized by her father unilaterally in one of these facilities. Yeah, the institution made scrambled eggs out of her brain. So that's a uh, makes sense that Kennedy was a little uh, off put by it. Yeah. Another interesting fact is this is actually the last piece of legislation that he will sign because he will be dead within a month and a half of this. Um, 
probably no relation. I'm probably sure it has to do with like the whole, you know, war in Vietnam and the handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And anyway, I'm like, it has probably a lot more to do with that than just like, oh, we want to make sure that, you know, people that have severe mental illness get uh, community care instead of institutionalized. The CIA is probably like, oh, well, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, Kennedy. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's too far. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about making a, a long range lobotomy joke, but I feel like I already made a lobotomy joke too recently. So if, if you yeah. have a good long range uh, Robert Kennedy lobotomy joke, you would like to comment in any of our social medias. We'd be more than happy to hear them. I'd love to hear them. And so so then that leads us to um, the legislation of Medicaid. And like everything, when we start doing research for these episodes, I'm surprised at how little I actually know about how these systems work. You know, something that I have to write a check to of taxes with every paycheck, you know, it, it's just automatically taken out Medicare, Medicaid. And to understand, it's like, well, I actually have no idea how Medicaid actually functions and what it does. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I just know I'm taxed for it. But with the creation of this program in 1965, there's a shift from inpatient to outpatient care that's accelerated. So one part of this legislation stipulates that the federal government would not pay for the inpatient care of psychiatric hospitals. And what's, what, what you need to, to take away from this is that the changes created with the Medicaid legislation shifts funding so that, so funding for people with severe mental illnesses in the state hospitals was solely the burden of the state and their taxpayers. With the Medicaid, it introduces a shared um, a shared responsibility for funding and a partnership with the federal government, so to speak. And in this legislation, it stipulates what they will and will not cover. And so now there is the incentive to limit the number of inpatients in the hospitals and other care facilities because it is radically expensive because the federal government isn't stepping in to actually help it. And that's the important shift that Medicaid actually creates. Yeah, and it's uh, it is hard to pin it on any one person's fault being, you know, it's hard to say Kennedy completely botched this because if it wasn't for his experience with his sister, he wouldn't have created all these systems that that made us start to reverse it. But you can see the pattern nonetheless of, of we stood at one point the free market tried to address it eventually the government began to take over that in that uh area uh because of the probably outpour of of wanting to do so from the people uh but eventually you get somebody in charge who has had either a bad experience with it or um like we'll see later with reagan somebody who wants to reallocate that money for bombs because they want to kill some ruskies over there and dirty dirty communist Mr. Uh, USSR tear down Mr. this wall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for whatever the reason is, it, the the result was we built up this large institutionalized system where the only way to get help was to go through this state funded system, and then the state decided it didn't actually want to have you in the facilities anymore. They wanted to push you out, and then eventually we get the final death note of the the omnibus uh, budget reconciliation bill of of 1981. Uh, that was kind of the death note to to uh, the our government uh, giving any kind of real support to mental health. And st- yeah, it country. is. And before we move on to that, I just want to quote um, that American Medical Association Journal of Ethics article. And it says this, quote, 
This created an incentive for the states to close the facilities that they had funded on their own and move patients into a community hospital and nursing homes partially paid for by Medicare and the federal government. And so it it's not it's not that it's a better solution. It's just that well, we get money if yeah. we actually and that's all that's all it is, right? So like Medicaid creates this weird incentive for these state-run hospitals that are expensive to operate to reduce their costs or find more or get a partnership in the funding if they reduce their number of inpatients. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, this continual mess of of and like I said, I I got a little ahead of us there, but the the next bullet on our list of things to cover is then Ronald Reagan uh during this this uh, budget reconciliation. Reconciliation. <laughs> Started to say reclamation there. Um of course it it was uh in the interest of expanding our defense budget, decided that we needed to cut domestic spending and shockingly the uh the mental health fund uh was one of those and, and this is again 20 years after we saw uh, not even 15 years after we saw kennedy create a system that encouraged everybody to no longer have their own state funded mental health systems but rather to give them to the federal government because that was a a larger tax incentive for them uh only for 15 years later for us to completely yank out the rug from underneath them uh and no longer allow them to have uh these this uh uh, instrument uh, for addressing the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, right, because I've carried water um, for several ideas, I can also carry water for the ones of freedom and the free market, where this is the problem when you start getting government intrusion into certain aspects, right? So now you have legislation that creates an incentive for companies and hospitals to decrease their number of inpatients because of funding, right? So now all of a sudden, this issue is not being caused by the free market. It's being caused by government intrusion into a system that, even though it's probably not perfect, is working probably better than what you get prior to 1963 and the introduction of the Community Health Act and 65 with the introduction of Medicaid, right? If you probably, if you could take a a sample of both of those times, like a pre those bills and a post those bills, you could probably say that it's like, I don't know, like the state hospitals aren't great, but it's a lot better than this weird hodgepodge that we get now because now we're left in the almost a limbo, right? Like we don't get the, like we get neither of the benefits of, of anything. And we're left with all of the, the consequences of it. We get like none of the good right. and it's all of the bad. And that is also what happens when you get these, this government intrusion into it. When you start getting more regulation into the market, when you start getting mm-hmm. overextension. Right. Of, and specifically, of I mean, the government found a reason for it to take over. So it created a system that only incentivized you to give up your power to the government to handle this problem. And then as soon as they wanted to go to war, they needed money and they yanked all the funding out from underneath you. So it's and like they, cut it. they as much as they thought it was an important thing for them to take control of it, as the government often does, it wants to take control of a lot of things. When the government finds something it wants to spend its money on a little worse, it has no problem reallocating those funds, whether you like it or not. And then you're left with nothing. So it is kind of behooves us to have. Uh, and I would say even I mean, even if you are a, a state uh 
back to like, hey, I think that this a is a problem the state has up. to tackle. Uh, <laughs> I think it's not crazy to still leave your options open maybe and uh, like allow the free market to have a space rather than encouraging the entire free market to dump its mentally ill on the federal government who uh, will inevitably find another war it wants to get into and decide to dump that uh, program for its defense fund. Yeah, and there's another article um, that uh, that's in the show notes and it says, quote, it required states to return to funding non-nursing homes for the long-term care of the patients with severe mental illness in the community, basically segregating many people with severe mental illness into large underfunded facilities. These facilities were often for-profit and privately owned, creating an incentive to reduce cost and care in the name of profits. And this is talking specifically about the Reagan omnibus spending cut. Because I guess somewhere in between there that there is the rise of private, you know, between 1965 and 1981, you do have the rise of these privately owned and privately funded care facilities. But because of government intrusion, like I'm here to be fair in all aspects of this, because of government intrusion, their market incentives are skewed. And we can't skirt around that. There's no way to sweep that under the rug because of the government's intervention and their overstep into this idea in this market, their market incentives are now completely fucked. Yeah. And to be fair, the other way too, we saw essentially, at least looking at the American perspective, uh, we saw it go from private to public, back to private, uh, back to public. back. So it's only 250 years of history. And we've seen like f- at least four swaps into what the primary uh, versus private ver- and public were of, of addressing this issue. Right, That's not an extended period of time for any of those. It's basically one generation and one generation back and forth for four generations. It's, you know, um, that's not a, that's a very short sample size in order to be able to purse out what exactly the best way to handle it is or whether one was going to or the other uh, kind of, I, and I said this a lot when we went through the COVID thing, um, kind of one one or the other you have to do you either believe we're all going to get uh, immunity by continuing our lives or we're going to shut down the virus by all staying at home but if half of us stay at home and half of us go out we're not doing anything really we're just kind of <laughs> like we're just doing slower natural immunity at that point so it's like you, you if you're gonna pick a path whether it be the private sector or the government 100 percent um, it would probably behoove you to allow one of them to actually do it for an extended period of time or to do it simultaneously next to each other rather than kind of doing this yo-yo effect and hoping uh, one of them just knocks out of the park on their first attempt into reacclimating that power. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, um, that is the the tug of war that we're, that we are battling all the time where at the end of the day, it's like, you would like to see if anything, a competition of the free market and the government at the same time, to see what actually provides the better service, right? Because like if if private companies could spring up and create a license for you to compete with the DMV, I'm sure the DMV would get their shit together really quick because they want your money. Right. And so no, that in- might that might make a really interesting future episode too, just as you say that of uh the idea of like how do you because it's not like the government can't participate in a free market to a certain extent. The problem is that the they government can. doesn't participate right. in the free market they mandate what they want uh and when they want to take over a certain uh monopolize a certain industry they just simply do that and make it illegal not to um but yeah that that's an interesting interesting idea an interesting thought of like the government doesn't have to not do research on this they just should compete in the market 
so that there is the room for other um, market uh, uh, elements to come up with solutions as well. Otherwise, there's not a free market. And that's kind of the whole reason a free market is supposed to work in the first place is that we get to run these simultaneous experiments to find out what the best method forward is. Um, and therefore, if you're going to have both, you actually have to have both. You can't have both and the government's going to use its power of government to compete, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. You know, or eat your cake and have it too, because you can have your cake and eat it too, but you can't eat your cake and have it too. That, that mm-hmm. saying is always like a, it's a weird one for me. It, it, and it, it is, it is interesting too. Um, and we can kind of close up on a couple of just some loosened things. Oh, one of the things that now we're talking about, like, how do you address this in an ANCAP society or, you know, what are the pitfalls? And we've been weaving in and out of this a lot, but I think one of the things I, I brush up against immediately when we start talking about this is like, how do you deal with the involuntary confinement of somebody, right? Because Absolutely. if we're talking about an, an, in in Kapistan where everything is voluntary cooperation and voluntary transactions, and there's no coercion whatsoever, how do you deal with like, because like violent people, that's one thing, right? Um, but how do you deal with like severe mental illness? Because it's not like they need to just be like taken out outside of town and purged, right? They need no. Help. You don't. You don't want to purge them. You want to take a, a note out of the British playbook and you take them all in a large boat and you take and them send them to, to Australia. Australia. That's right. And you dump them all out. <laughs> They're already fucking crazy down there anyway. They'll get along just fine. Uh, we actually, can just drop them on the the opposite side of the uh, the Australia. There, <laughs> it's not like that place get any worse. Like, why do you know? It's like <laughs> it's it started as a prison. It, yeah, I had no started, idea it was a new Sydney over here. <laughs> it started as a prison colony, and it, it will end as a prison colony. No, no matter how you guys try to spin it, Australia, you guys are a prison colony. <laughs> like that's just like accept your fate, accept your reality. Why that's, do you think? All of the surrounding waters have so many things that can kill you in them. <laughs> We're trying to keep you there. And eliminate you while you're there. But that but that is one thing that I, that's that's a hard thing to try to reconcile is like how do you deal with this concept of involuntary confinement? Because that was a big push. Um in one of the articles linked, it actually talks about all of the the legal case studies that essentially create an individual's right against involuntary confinement. And that is great. Right. And I think there's something that you should strive. Like there should be a moral um, striving that we, as all of the people should push for to make sure that people's rights aren't being violated and that individual liberty is always preserved. However, that also brushes up to a point where it's like individual liberty cannot always be preserved if you want a nice peaceful and harmonious existence on the other side, like eventually certain actions and behaviors brush up to where it becomes counter to what you want in an ANCAP society. And so like dealing with the idea of like involuntary confinement is one thing that really puzzles me about this. Cause I don't know how you get around it. And I did want to read a quote from, one of the articles that uh, that I was reading, and it made a really interesting point. And I don't 
particularly agree with it or disagree with it, but I think that these this the author raises a very interesting um, point, and it says, quote, these court decisions have certainly limited the ability of state facilities to confine people in hospitals against their will and created a conflict between laws that are intended to preserve liberty and prevent wrongful hospitalization on one hand and the need to identify and treat people early in their diseases on the other. Although preserving the rights of people with mental severe, severe mental illness to be treated in the least restrictive settings is noble, it has allowed many people with severe mental illness to fall through the cracks in the system or to be re-hospitalized in what has been termed the revolving door of acute hospital admissions. An even more egregious situation occurs when difficulty is admitted when difficulty being admitted to a hospital leads homelessness of people with severe mental illness who wander the streets in major cities being arrested or dying. The term, quote, dying with one's rights on, end quote, was termed by Darnold Tefford in 1973 to, to describe how the laws have gone too far in protecting the rights of individuals at the expense of their safety and well-being. Now, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to push back on. But it is kind of a really good synopsis of the idea that you would be battling in Ancapistan or even in our society today to bring it a little bit closer to home about how do you identify and address this issue because this is America. We believe in individual rights. In fact, it does. you don't need America to believe that God-given natural rights exist, right? You have negative rights by virtue of being a human. But, but then you start to brush up against that very interesting line of when do you start to violate an individual's rights for the betterment of society? And that puts you into a very dangerous and nasty world of collectivism, right? Like, let there be no mistake, the line of, Keeping somebody in a hospital involuntarily is not all that far from rounding somebody up and sending them to a gulag. Like, we don't fool yourself into thinking that there's a, a radical moral line and a difference between the two because they're only inches apart. And it's worth we noting. We talked about this earlier. I mean, all of these conditions are kind of a spectrum. We all kind of have anxiety. We all kind of have depression. Some of us have severe anxiety and depression. At what point does that anxiety require that we necessitate throwing you in a cage and making sure that you're not a threat to society anymore? Yeah. And who gets to draw that line? What if you agree that, yeah, there are certain people who are mentally ill enough they need to get thrown away into and held involuntarily, and then somebody knocks on your door tomorrow and they say, you're one of them. We don't think you're mentally stable enough to be here on your own. You know, that it's it's a tough question and a tough decision to give the authority to any particular human to decide that because it's like, man, it's, uh, I mean, I believe in free will. I believe in the right to, to choose the, the path of life you want to go on. Obviously I'm sitting here as a contrarian anarchist saying that we should have no Kings in our lives, uh, part of the no King network. Uh, and yet we're going to also sit here and advocate that, yeah, you should definitely grab somebody who's uh, suffering from schizophrenia and throw them in a straitjacket against their will and hold them indefinitely, even if they've committed no crimes, just simply because they're a crazy person. Um, and to me, that that kind of is, I, I in our uh, beginning of, of forming this episode, it kind of came to me as 
a similar argument to that of hate speech of we don't really need hate speech laws because we have laws. If you break a law, you get in trouble. And there's really no reason to also throw a hate crime on top of that. I said hate speech. I should have said hate crime. Uh, there's not really a necessity to throw a hate crime on top of a crime because once you've committed a crime, that's a crime. You should go to jail for that. Uh, I almost think it's the same thing for me in this argument. It's kind of like, I don't know, if you're able to not commit crimes, you could be the most schizophrenic motherfucker on the planet. If there are 30 voices are talking to you, but none of them are causing you to harm other people or still other people's things, then I don't know. I don't think I have the right to throw you away if you don't think you need mental health uh, uh, help treatment, whatever the word is in, in that moment, if you're not breaking any of the laws, violating anybody else's rights, then I think that's kind of where I have to draw that line personally. Yeah. And I would agree with that, that as long as you are not violating the negative rights of anyone else and causing harm, then who are we as a society and we as individuals to advocate for a society to hold you against your will? And I, but I think that versus if you're having like actual daily conditional effects on the people around you the way rosemary is fucking up kennedy's presidential run in the future then certainly you should lobotomize those people absolutely like how's joe supposed to yeah how's he supposed to become president with you running around god forbid you get knocked up and we have to deal with an unwanted pregnancy in the family <laughs> right he's like he, your brother's supposed to be president but hey <laughs> yeah it is no it, it is like i i like that I like that that quote because it does sum up a lot of things where the authors it it doesn't seem that they're advocating for one or the other but it is it is presenting the argument fairly on both sides where it talks about the individual liberties of the people of this country and it talks about how yes that is a noble cause to make sure that no individual liberties are ever violated but then you also brush against kind of this idea of like society and what is good and isn't good and i can't help but like frame this in the idea of like jordan neely right and and i have no i have no like i don't have any definitive answers and this isn't me coming from a place of like i know this or i feel so strongly about this i'm gonna pontificate it like it is facts right i have no idea how you deal with this but it almost makes you wonder like like does jordan neely need to be on a subway Right. And that's kind of the question that, that we have to ask ourselves as a society is somebody that has actually committed a lot of violent crimes in the past, that the system, right, if anything, this is a, an indictment on the DA of New York City, it's an indictment on the police commissioner of New York City and the city council of New York City that has allowed the subways to become the filth and muck and mire, because I can tell you as somebody that's spent a lot of times in trains and subways in Europe, I didn't worry about, you know, being on the London tube about, you know, certain things. You didn't have happening. to check your shoes for poop when you got off a London train. Yeah. And I, yeah, like this. Yeah. And I got my wallet picked from these gypsy kids on the Romanian train, but that's on me for not being aware of the gypsy kids. Wow. Right. Like that's, that's Matthew, on me. You assuming it was those dirty gypsy kids. Cause it was voices. <laughs> Because it was like, let's not make any like. I'm not gonna sit here and try to like. Hey, you like decks? I'm not gonna skate around. That is like, oh, I have no idea who could have picked my wallet. It was the fucking gypsy kids on the train. <laughs> I'm in Budapest. Who else stole my fucking wallet? Like, I'm not gonna sit here and try to try to skirt around that. But it's but it's also like that is a significantly less dangerous and 
threatening situation than, I don't know, like an allegedly agitated homeless man talking about how I have nothing left to live for and I'm going to either be dead or in jail by the end of the day walking up and down the sub, right? Like those are two, I'll do, give me the, you called kids. it. Yeah. Give me the gypsy kids all day. I'll, I'll say like, yeah, I can replace my wallet and my IDs and my debit cards. That other person, I have no idea what they're going to do, how they're going to respond. And that's kind of the, when you start, we're in this very interesting world where we've got to start putting our theory into praxis and dealing into, and I don't have the answers. And I'm not saying that I do. I will never say that I definitively know what to do, but we've got to start saying is like, at what point does the rhetoric and alleged act, right? Preventative act, or I don't know, like actions of somebody start to dictate that maybe this person doesn't need to be on a subway. And then how do we deal with that? Right. To make a better experience for everybody in society. Right. Because instead of, right. Because if he was confined involuntarily to a mental hospital, well, um, he's not dead, you know? Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to say, right? It's like, so you, so you can violate somebody's rights, but he's not getting choked out by a former Marine on a train car for whatever actually ended up happening. And I'm not saying that that's the outcome that needs, I'm not saying that he should have been, you know, removed involuntarily and put somewhere. I'm not saying, but that's the, but those are the type of questions that we have to butt up against. If we're, if we want anybody to take our ideas seriously, then we've got to start confronting like where the metal, where the rubber meets the road. Right. What, what is your solution then? If you're saying that they can't do this, um, and I, I think it's also fair to hold this up as, and again, I want to make that point quickly that too often it gets held up as the example of like, well, how do you solve the homeless problem? Then if you think an anarchy could work, how do you solve the mental illness crisis? Uh, and it's like this false dichotomy of like, I don't have to, or shouldn't be expected to have to argue against perfection. Because I'm not arguing it's perfection. We just saw a guy get choked out in a New York subway yesterday under the current system where the government runs everything. So what I'm advocating for is not a perfect system. It is a potentially better system, a system that might have a solution for this um, this problem that was being absolutely ignored by our government currently. And I would also argue when the state is going to take responsibility for something like this, uh, and then yank the blanket out from under you, uh, the proverbial rug out from under your feet. I think that that needs to come with like an extra little bit of a marring of like, well, look at the what your system has brought us currently. You can say like, well, we need a different type of state control, but we've been doing state control for a while. And it has, has not yet brought us anything great. Granted, again, 250 years, small sample size. But we have not seen positive results yet. In fact, we've seen a continuing increase in mental illness, a continuing uh, increase in homelessness, uh, continuing increase in poop on sidewalks in every major city. Uh, yeah. And that's what the state solution has brought us so far. Absolutely. And if I'm the defense attorney in that, I'm putting the New York police and the New York DA on trial. I'm making it about their failure to actually make sure that the subways are safe. Not, yeah. not my clients' individual actions to ensure that the people on this subway are safe i'm putting i'm putting yeah i'm putting the cops and the da and the city council and the mayor on trial if i was mm-hmm. the defense attorney i'm spinning that to where it's like oh yeah every you live in new york you live in manhattan you hate the subway right 
because of all of these right. things that have been allowed to be perpetuated because of the state. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, to kind of wrap this up, it's, it's not that, um, God, it's such a, a multifaceted complex issue. And to say that Logan and I have the answers would be just utterly arrogant and out of line. But I guess all, all we hope to do is, ex- is to dive into these topics and explore that they're a lot more, they're a lot more multifaceted and they're a lot more complex than just like a simple policy decision, because even the best intentions at a policy level have unintended consequences down the line. And I don't know what the answer is, right? Because I I mean, ideally people, right? And Kapistan, it's sometimes like, yeah, it is a utopia, but I also think it's like something that could be achieved tomorrow if people actually paid attention and cared just a little right. bit, right? Like that it actually definitely could... part of that formula is that uh, at some point, as we like to say on the show, the freedom comes with responsibility. So you have to start taking up that responsibility if you ever want to have that freedom. So there is something to that of like, hey, you better start paying attention, man. You better start picking up the pieces if you really want to live in a stateless society. Uh, because if you're not finding solutions, when people cry out that they need a solution, some politician's going to make that his entire campaign slogan. He's going to get elected. And statistics say that he will be reelected 96 out of 100 times, which is a very high success rate. So if you think, yeah, and that's just it. So I think that that's, uh, that's all we got. Um really appreciate you. This has turned into a, a, a lot longer of an episode than I had anticipated and probably Logan too. But at the same time, I don't know. If they're good, we let them roll. If they're not, we shut them down early. <laughs> um, that's, some, <laughs> that's, some, that's some behind baseball for you, you know, some inside baseball for you guys. Um, but uh, no, I think that these are all ideas worth exploring and it's worth figuring out where we've come and how we got here and how we actually approach it because there is no one right answer. Um, Every community is going to be different, right? How how the area I live in deals with something is different than the area that Logan lives in. And that's why you don't want a top-down government response to certain things. But it's also important to acknowledge that you cannot just throw up your hands and say, well, if we don't want daddy government, then daddy free market is also going to solve these things for us. Because they're like neither are benign in their in their essence they are only as good as the individuals that comprise them and that actively participate them and so it's one of those things like everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die everybody wants a better community if you want one you gotta you gotta work for it because the free market all the free market does is is fill the niches and the demands of the market so we have to be sophisticated enough as a market to demand the right things to get the real outcome we want I think that's that is the burden. Once again, the absolute burden of responsibility. Thank you guys very much for tuning in and sticking with us. We love you guys. Um, you are the reason that we do this podcast. Not true. Logan and I would talk if we only had like three listeners uh, an episode. <laughs> However, we, we really used to do this while we played games of FIFA. We just cut the FIFA part out and started. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. We would uh, know, but we really do appreciate you guys um, for supporting us and being a part of this and helping us grow um, in our personal lives in these ideas of liberty and being along the ride with you. Um, Go check out the sponsors. We couldn't do this without them. We really appreciate them. They are in the show notes below. Go check out the No Kings Network if you're interested in being a part of a voluntary liberty-based movement that is trying to win the culture. Um, what else we got? Uh, go follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
against the mob. I think that's about all we got. So with all that being said, we fight against the mob with people over politics. We'll see you next week.